Cats, not in front of the Klingons. This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. Welcome to the latest episode of the Glenn Butler Podcast Hour Spectacular, where we ask the Almighty for his ID. I am Glenn Butler, and I am excited about this episode because we are back in the Star Trek vault, the Star Trek vintage vault, and we are talking about a controversial and much derided entry, Star Trek V The Final Frontier, which... If the previous movie is known as the one with the whales, this is known as the one that sucks. (laughs) Of course, I can't just discuss this on my own. I must bring in my brother, Mr. Scott Butler. Scott, if a cult leader wanted to brainwash you by using a foundational trauma that's formed a basic part of your emotional life, what trauma would they pick? Probably being forced to come up with answers to all these questions you keep asking me at the start of your podcasts. Cop out. How dare you? <laughs> Either that or Super Bowl thirty-five. Oh, how dare you? <laughs> that other voice you heard was, of course, our very special guest for this installment, uh, Mr. Eric Amundsen. Eric, what trauma would a cult leader use to manipulate you? Well, I just called Scott out as a cop-out, but I'm a really anxious person, and being someone who has anxieties, just about everything that comes out of my mouth, there's at least a dozen of them in my past that if they just, if he just took one of them, I would probably call it a deal. That, that makes a lot of sense, and as, as someone else with a great deal of anxiety, I, I grok that very much. We reach. <laughs> My answer would be much the same. If this cult leader wanted to create a tableau, it would probably be a time in my past when I was doing the the very, very best I could to try to grapple with something, and the response that I got was a deadpan, not good enough. That just cuts to the heart of me. Not like an angry British, not good enough? Damn it, not good enough? That I could deal with. Okay. But just a deadpan, not good enough. Uh, One of the forms that my anxiety takes is that, like, people I've known in the past, like, become the voices of my insecurities, and that was a big one for a long time. Mm. That's, That's definitely something that any cult leader could latch onto to make me betray my friends. Basically. So if there was a laughing bearded Vulcan who told you you were good enough, you would follow him through the galactic barrier? I might. I'd think about it. Yeah, and hell, 
Like, it's not that we knew that the galactic barrier was going to be a big problem until five minutes before we spend, like, two and a half minutes going through it with absolutely no problems at all. Galactic barrier might be fun. You never know. Well, I mean, there aren't any instrument readings, and, you know, the cult leader du jour says that it's really just an extension of your psychological barriers. I mean, that's, that's the essential metaphor of this movie, right? Are you sure it's not Kirk climbing the mountain because it's there? That's sort of Kirk's quest for God, is trying to ascend the mountain on his own, unassisted. Exactly. But before we get to the deeper meaning of these aspects of the movie, a little bit of background. This is, of course, following up on the immensely successful, uh, aesthetically and financially, Star Trek IV it's following up on two movies directed by Leonard Nimoy, and so, in the name of equity and a favored nations contract, William Shatner gets to direct now. This is the first movie made since the advent of The Next Generation, which means that the Star Trek franchise had kind of a weird dynamic at this point. This movie came out between seasons two and three of Next Gen. It was in production at the same time as season two, and... I want to go around and see what you guys think about how this movie kind of fits in with where Star Trek is going. I know the first two seasons of Next Gen are much maligned, and deservedly so for a lot of reasons. They are kind of rough. Yes, to be sure. But does it feel like having a movie with the original series cast kind of slotted in the middle here is kind of tonally off? Eric, what do you think? That is a really, a very strange sort of situation to be in. And it's one that, as far as I know, is without analog elsewhere. So that makes it even harder to look at in terms of a, a pattern or anything. Like, it is a singular occurrence. You know, I think I'm going to have to think about that one because I'm not sure I have too much for it. But it is right before Riker gets the beard. And I'm wondering if, you know, there was some sort of sacrifice that had to be made so that Riker could grow the beard. <laughs> uh, well, the beard was grown for season two. Oh, yeah, you're right. Yeah. It was. So, yeah, but, but he didn't grow into the beard until season three. Well, season three, of course, is where popular imagination says Next Gen became a routinely good show. I agree with that assessment. Though, I mean, there were good episodes in the first two seasons, and there were crap episodes that followed, but, you know. Oh, absolutely. I think you're saying it's totally off, and my answer is kind of, it's not, and I think we're saying those things for the exact same reasons. Next Generation and the movie franchise had virtually nothing to do with each other. Right. Marv Bennett had nothing to do with Next Generation. Gene Roddenberry had nothing to do with the movies. They had no connection whatsoever other than doing the Next Generation theme sort of brought Jerry Goldsmith back into the orbit of Paramount in the Star Trek office, and he wound up doing the score for Star Trek V. Beyond that, the two have nothing to do with each other. They have no connection to one another, other than they're financed by the same studio. They have no production in common. They have no executives in common. So saying they're tonally off is like saying, well... The same studio came out with a romantic comedy and then six months later also came out with an action film. Isn't that tonally off for Lionsgate to release both of them? 
Well, no. I mean, entries being made concurrently in a franchise is hardly analogous to a movie company making completely different movies. Well, they are completely different. First of all, one's television production and one's feature production, which was completely separate at that point. It's, there's maybe more overlap between them these days, but those are two different planets. Well, in terms of Star Trek, they're even more apart now. Yeah. Well, you have the same thing now where CBS is making a series for its online digital stream and Paramount Films are making movies and they have nothing to do with each other. That That's not going to be tonally off when the two of them don't have anything to do with each other. It's just because they have nothing to do with each other. Okay, I don't, I don't mean that in terms of continuity or anything like that. I just mean... Next Generation, whatever you might say about its quality, was a popular mainstream show. It had scads of viewers at this point. Did it have scads of viewers at this point, or did it get scads of viewers in a year or two? It's no, it did from the beginning. A fair amount of viewers. Okay. Yeah, from the from the beginning, it, it had a lot of viewers, especially for syndication. I think that's an aspect of its reputation that's kind of been retconned over the years. But what I'm getting at is that Next Gen is kind of moving Star Trek forward in a way that going back for another Toast movie kind of works against. Or it might work against. It can harmonize or it can not. And I think one of the differences between Star Trek V and VI, which we'll examine more when we get to VI, is that they work with and harmonize with that direction in very different ways. Well, that's true. Star Trek VI does have a little more to do with the current production of Next Generation than Star Trek V does. Although I think there are a lot of reasons for that. A, a lot of people still derided Next Gen as crap at this point. B, Next Gen was still pretty new at this point. I think maybe both your point you're trying to make and my rebuttal of it are both grounded more in the way franchises work now. Maybe. And that's actually a good thing to, to look at. Because this is one of the first instances where a franchise has two very different shows or two very different productions going from it. Where on one hand you have the TOS films, the feature films, and then on the other you have the TNG show. And though they take up nominally the same universe they still have very, very different ways of looking at that universe and very different ways of interfacing with it. Not just because of the medium, but also the storytelling that's attempted and the character dynamics and things like that. Yeah, definitely. I think your idea that the series that's on TV and the movie that comes out during the summer hiatus should have more to do with each other and should interact and should reference each other and reinforce each other is very much based in the way franchises work now and also my idea that the two they're two totally separate things and they have nothing to do with each other and there's one part of the franchise over here doing this and there's one part of the franchise over there doing that and the two don't necessarily have to have anything to do with each other they're just two totally separate parts of the same franchise that's also an idea that's kind of rooted in how franchises work like in the last 10 or 20 years especially star trek where even accepting the 1989 mindset of you've got a movie and a TV series, you've also got a novel series going on, you've got a, 
a role-playing game that was popular. You, you've got fan fiction all over the place. There were always different kinds of Star Trek going on in different corners of the fandom. If you roll it forward a few years, you've got DS9, you've got Voyager, you've got novel series based around each of them, you've, you've got video games coming out, you've, you've got all sorts of things, and they don't all necessarily have to do with each other other than all being Star Trek. One bit of anecdata that I was reminded of, one of my clear memories of actually going to see the film, because I had three very clear memories. One of them was, this was one of the first occasions where I was watching a movie and thinking, wow, this isn't very good. The other one, the one that's pertinent here, is um, that I thought it was kind of strange that they were doing an original series film and not a next-gen film. Interesting. Hmm. I remember thinking that. And then the third one we'll get to at some point fairly soon. So I never had that reaction. I mean, at this point, I'm not sure if I was watching Next Generation, because I don't think I picked that up until about season three or four. Well, maybe it was earlier. I don't quite remember. But I, I never had that thought that, well, it's weird that they're doing the TV show and then this movie is part of something else that's not the TV show. Because I was a Star Trek fan before there was a Next Generation. It never struck me as odd that they kept making these movies that had nothing to do with the next generation. Because mm. my entire Star Trek fandom before 1987 had nothing to do with the next generation. Well, that's also true. And now that I'm thinking about it, my memory of myself at that time, I'm looking at the date and thinking, this was summer of 89. I was 13. I think of myself as much having been much younger then when this came out. To put this movie in, in a little more context, you mentioned the summer of 89. There was a whole series of movies this summer which were very, very notable, to me at least, as a kid. Yeah, I, I went to see Star yeah. Trek V. If I remember correctly, Star Trek V was the first movie I went to see on my own. Because for some reason, I don't know if Mom didn't want to see it or she was just busy with other shit. But I remember I went to see this movie on my own. I was It was at the Milford Showcase. And when I came out of the movie, there was a whole lobby full of people lined up to see Batman. Yep. Yes, Batman, if I recall correctly, opened the week after this movie. Uh, this movie, no matter its reputation, no matter what you think of it, it opened at number one its first week, and then Batman happened. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then a lot of movies happened. Just in the summer of 1989, there was... Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, there was Ghostbusters 2, Lethal Weapon 2, License to Kill, we just mentioned Batman, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, Do the Right Thing, which might not have been competition, but still, Karate Kid 3, Weekend at Bernie's, UHF. Holy crap, that's when it came out? Yes. Uh, Friday the 13th 8, Nightmare on Elm Street 5, both of which were summer movies, for some reason. That is very strange, but at the same time, they're they're high up in the uh, in the numbers there. True. So um, yeah, you know, nothing but sequels these days. Space or the hood. Yeah, just picture someone in 1989 looking at the marquee of the movies, saying, "Oh, there's nothing but sequels. Nobody knows how to make an original movie except oh. Weird Al." Well, you know what they said in 1989 about the Batman movie. This is a whole renaissance for comic book-based films. No one's ever made comic book superhero films this way before. This is incredible. Now comic book superhero films will be taken seriously. 
And then right after that, there was a whole slew of other comic book superhero films in 90, 91, 92, 93. Any comic book they could get their hands on, they threw into production, because we're going to get on the Batman coattails. Oh, yes, with Darkman. And Dick Tracy. Ah, uh, yes. But hey, Blade came out not too long after that. Or was that like 93? I thought that was more late 90s. Like 97, 98 or so. Or am I misremembering? I could be misremembering. It's impossible to know. But yeah, everything anyone has said about the Marvel films in the last five or six years, they said about Batman in 1989. Uh, Well, except we didn't get the Batman cinematic universe quite yet. Well, we did. We got a sequel and then a third one and then a fourth one. In a way. Kind of. That Batman series later fell into the 90s trend of naming everything forever and then falling off the face of the earth. Like the Spice Girls album forever. Yes. Everything in the 90s was going to be called forever and then as soon as somebody called something forever they fell off the face of the earth. But that was a later trend and had nothing to do with the summer of 1989 when Star Trek V came. Back to Star Trek V. Obviously, the biggest thing about this movie is its reputation, and one of the things that I want to track throughout this episode, as we talk about the different elements of the movie, is whether it really deserves that reputation. Because you you know me, I'm always after a redemptive reading. I have to admit that when I was looking at the task of, of re-watching this, I was thinking of it from a Calvinist perspective. And from the idea of uh, the the T in the Calvinist tulip of total depravity as opposed to utter depravity. The idea of total depravity being that none of your good qualities will actually get you salvation because your good qualities aren't good enough and they're not really all that good. But it's different from utter depravity, the idea that even your good qualities are terrible. And so you should just not deal with them at all. So it was a question of whether this movie still had charms, but the charms failed to actually elevate the movie above the mire that it seems to wallow in, or if there are no charms. Well, this movie, for all of its faults, this movie has what might be my second favorite scene in the entire film franchise. Yes, for sure, and we will absolutely get there. I'm interested in seeing whether the film can be resolved through faith alone in the ideals of Star Trek, or through good works. Well, the second and third act kind of fail to do much in the way of works, so we'll, we'll, we'll see. <laughs> yes, indeed. We'll see if Sola Fidelis gets it through. There is a certain amount of historical piling on that happens to things that are noted for their crappitude, and that has certainly happened with Star Trek V, where people castigate it as one of the worst things in the history of entertainment, and it's not one of the worst things in the history of entertainment, but it is also not a good movie. No. No, it doesn't deserve all the scorn it gets, but it deserves some scorn. Yes. But let's see. One of the things that I think is the easiest to pick on about it is the actual production. The production quality is crap. The production quality is crap, but one of the reasons why it's easy to pile on with this movie, and why it was easy for so many people to pile on with this movie, is because it looks cheap. And it kind of feels cheap at various times. Um, Yeah. Well, there's two primary aspects to it that make it look cheap. One is that they switched off of ILM for their effects 
and switched to some other company that didn't do half as good a job. And two is the deficiencies oh. in William Shatner's direction. Oh, I was going to go with Corman-esque, but that's okay. <laughs> uh, well, in terms of production design and all of that, a lot of that really is the budget, which, while expanded from the previous movies... I think since Star Trek II, each of these movies has gotten a bigger budget than the last, but... But it's like a cost-of-living adjustment. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Uh, like you said, they switched from ILM to another effects house. From what I read, partially because they thought ILM had been charging them too much, and partially because they thought they could get just as good results out of the effects house that they went with, which did not occur. Not in the least. No. And also, of course, they're starting to use sets built for the next generation. Uh, in this movie, it's mainly consigned to the corridors, which is really obvious, but... I mean, it doesn't damn the movie, obviously, but it does kind of lend an air of, oh, you couldn't build a corridor? How does that work exactly when they switch production houses from one film in a franchise to the next? Because... The Bird of Prey model they use in Star Trek V was built by ILM. And the Enterprise model was built by Doug Trumbull for Star Trek One and was used by ILM in three movies before it was passed on to whatever effects house did Star Trek V. So yeah. how does that work? I mean, doesn't ILM have some ownership of that model they built? Or is that all like work for hire and it gets stored by Paramount? I'm not sure how exactly that works in terms of housing the actual model. And I'm not sure if maybe they built a new Enterprise? I'm really not sure. I haven't checked up on that in enough detail. But nonetheless, the actual ship shots do not look good. The, no. Um, well, so, the, the Bird of Prey does look pretty good. I remember, I remember looking at it the first time it comes on screen and thinking, Okay, this looks pretty good. The Bird of Prey model looks good, but the composition of the shots and the combination of the ship with the Starfield background it just always looks off. Yeah. yeah. Even the sets and the mock-ups that they build, that, that hangar deck set for the shuttlecraft landing, the shuttlecraft itself, it all looks cheap and slapdash. The model they built of the back end of the Enterprise with the shuttle bay doors looks terrible. It also looks like the back half of the Enterprise is about 12 feet wide. There's that. It's got that sort of junior high diorama sort of thing going on. Like, there's enough technical savvy in the maker so that it looks like what it's supposed to, but at the same time, it's got the visual heft of cardboard. Right, and that shuttle bay is one instance where it really does cut into the drama of a couple of the scenes in, in a way that really hurts the movie at some key moments. You think if the sets looked better and the effects looked better, then that shuttle landing scene would have been more gripping? Yeah, actually. If, if the shots of the shuttle heading toward the Enterprise had looked more like they were ships in space... Which, okay, that doesn't make much sense. But if the shots of the shuttle heading toward the Enterprise had looked more like any other scenes of ships in space in any Star Trek movie, 
and not like cutouts against a starfield background if the actual shuttle hitting the enterprise and crashing in the shuttle bay had been conveyed in a way that was more visceral yeah i think that scene would have been a lot better mm. better effects might not have helped but it would have helped by not hurting because the way it was it certainly hurt the scene right and there are other more more subtle things like the shuttlecraft in Yosemite Park that goes to pick up Kirk, Spock, and McCoy is conveyed by a big light behind a, a line of trees, like this is the X-Files. Well, you can tell McCoy wants to believe. Oh, I <laughs> bet he does. And he's super racist when he's drunk. <laughs> yes, that was my comment. McCoy in that scene is kind of a prick. Like, really, just... Seriously, just let it go. How many years have you guys been together? This is your friend who just recently put his mind back into his dead body. Speaking of the big three in their little campout with added racism, <laughs> let's talk about the characters in this movie, because I really feel like that is the movie's big strength. In it some ways. With the caveat that that only really applies for the big three. Right. This isn't really an ensemble piece anymore. Three and four we talked about being really nice ensemble pieces, gave everyone something to do. In this movie, it's more like most of them get scenes. Yeah, yeah. They, they all get their bit. But it's really a story that's focused on Kirk, Spock, and McCoy. And McCoy is really there as the sidekick to Kirk and Spock. Yep. Right, but with that caveat, I think that that focus lets them kind of explore the characters in ways that I think are interesting and in ways that I think are compelling. Possibly, but there's a certain extent to which I'm not sure I get Kirk, or at least not the Kirk in the movies. Like, the Kirk in the original series I kind of got, but the ones in the movies, every once in a while they try and add some sort of dimension to him that like it crashes in and then it crashes right out well that's something obviously that uh, Shatner was interested in doing this time with the director's chair and his role in developing the story for the movie so obviously he's going to be interested in what Kirk's doing this time around I think Kirk in this movie there's a lot of not large bits, but there's a lot of parts in this movie that show you that this is Kirk after Star Trek 3. Remember, we talked about this in Star Trek 3, and then we hit on it again in Star Trek 4, that tossing his career down the toilet to go save Spock in Star Trek 3 is really sort of a crossing the Rubicon moment for Kirk. And in a lot of scenes in Star Trek 5 show that he is now firmly in don't-give-a-shit mode. <laughs> you know, I'm going on shore leave. I'm not even bringing my communicator with me. I'm just going to waltz onto the bridge wearing my ratty, smelly camping clothes and carrying my canteens. He's snarking at people. He's, he's, he's cracking jokes. He's not taking things seriously. He's, he's just waltzing through. 
This is Kirk, who is firmly in post-Star Trek 3 don't-give-a-shit mode. He grew all of his fucks with the Genesis device, and when that went up, <laughs> there went all of that. He made a decision in Star Trek 3 that my Starfleet career is no longer something I give fucks about. And you see that in a several scenes in Star Trek V. I have no problems believing that Kirk grew his fucks with protomatter. <laughs> I've been saying through all of these Star Trek Film Vault shows that these movies are about the fact that the crew is old. In Star Trek Three, Kirk had a lot of wistfulness, a lot of drama, a lot of grief happening with Spock and with David, and Star Trek Four was kind of the moment of grace where he could be lighter and the stakes were not treated like they were so high. In this movie, I feel like it's kind of Kirk in a midlife crisis, a little bit, or yeah. possibly Kirk in that maybe post-midlife crisis, now I don't give a fuck. Uh, that's mode, what I was going like to say. Like you were saying. Kirk in Star Trek 1 was in his midlife crisis. He was definitely having a midlife crisis in Star Trek 1. This yes. is Kirk in his, I was going to say, as soon as you said... You know, the stages of life. A lot of old people don't give a fuck. So why are they going to give a fuck? Look at all that I've been through in my life, and I survived all of that, and I'm here, and it's because of me that you're here, so fuck you if I have to pretend to give a shit. So you mean, for Kirk, life has begun at 50? Kirk is firmly in that old man don't give a shit mode. Yes. And as McCoy has kind of always been in old man don't give a shit mode. McCoy entered old man don't give a shit mode before the original series. Yeah, he basically. entered old man don't give a shit mode before high school graduation. <laughs> Some of us do. And as part of not giving a shit, we of course open this movie with Captain Kirk climbing a mountain. Why is he climbing a mountain? Because it's what pilgrims do. Well... Also, it's also what extremely masculine, manly, heroic types do. Because he doesn't give a shit anymore. He's climbing a mountain with absolutely zero safety equipment. Just for shits and giggles. Why? Because he's fresh out of shits to give. Prefiguring the extreme sports craze of the 90s. I, James I, T. Kirk, trendsetter. <laughs> Man, you imagine the X Games of the 23rd century? <laughs> well, it's all Dom Jot. It, it, it's, all, it's all Dom Jot and space jumping. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, what sort of journey do you think Kirk goes on in this movie? We open with him climbing the mountain because it's there, because he hasn't yet, presumably. And it's something he feels like doing. I don't know that it's really the spirit of exploration, because I think Yosemite has been pretty well explored. But yeah, and Spock actually mentions that the record ascent for El Capitan is in no danger of being broken. Right, well, getting the record is, isn't the point, though. It's just, it's just to climb it. It's more to feel that exhilaration of having done it. I assume I myself am not a rock climber. I don't know a whole lot about it. 
Oh, it was kind of funny, and, and even though I was joking about it's what pilgrims do, I mean, it strikes me as kind of interesting to think about that a pilgrim will go up a mountain to seek the numinous, to talk to God. I mean, that's what Moses did. And so, you know, if you are trying to get that sort of gnosis, it makes sense to seek high places that are hard to get to and possibly dangerous to even try. Though I, I don't think the story really pays that off. It's kind of interesting that that's in there. There is a theme running through this movie of people striving for something higher. <laughs> How dare you. And it's, it starts with Kirk climbing the mountain. And then it's trying to teach Spock. Row, row, row your boat. And then there's the whole Cybok thing. And release your pain. And let's go to the shockery. That's supposed to be a whole thematic element that I'm not sure the movie ex ever explicitly ties together. Right. There's this search for enlightenment through journeying, through questing. And at the end, of course, we find that the god of shockery is a petty thug. Well, at the end of the movie, we are told quite literally and quite explicitly the real god we've been questing for are the friends we've made along the way. The power was in you all along. And that's the enlightenment that our characters have to reach. That, that's the sort of catharsis that they have to reach, to, to know that their bond is as holy as whatever god they seek. Well, I think that put a button on it. <laughs> I think that put a bow on it, dude. What do you want us to say to that? It's kind of funny, though. Like, the whole, like, striving for something greater I idea. The reason why I was like, eh, okay, because I was thinking about the delegates on Nimbus 3, or at least the two established delegates before the Romulan shows up, have given up completely. And there's also this weird sort of sense that Starfleet is clearly out of fucks to give this film. Because the Enterprise is not ready to go. And yet they're like, yeah, we need you to go to Nimbus 3 to handle this hostage situation. Where there are three hostages, you know, one of them being some kind of young idealistic Romulan, which is an interesting addition to the planet of the, their planet of hats, and two completely washed up people put out to pasture in a hardship post. Like, these are clearly not high priority delegates. Right. There are lots of people in this movie who have given up and who either have or will find that their quests are empty. You know, the Enterprise being so out of commission in the beginning of the movie, throughout the movie really, kind of takes some of the oomph out of the catharsis at the end of Star Trek IV. You know, Scotty even quotes Kirk's line at the end, you know, let's see what she's got. Oh yeah, we did. And it's not much. <laughs> You know, there's there's kind of an emptiness at the heart of it that has to be filled on this quest for enlightenment. 
there are a lot of failures in this movie. I mean, starting right off the bat where they have this new ship and they're supposed to be on the new ship, but the ship doesn't work, and that's a failure. And Scotty is supposed to be fixing stuff, but as soon as he fixes one thing, six other things break, and that's a failure. Mm. And they have the planet of galactic peace, and that's a failure. And they ban everyone from having weapons, but they still have weapons, and that's a failure. And it's supposed to be bringing people together, but it winds up as an armed hostage situation, and that's a failure. And then the Enterprise tries to go and rescue the hostages, and that's a failure. And then Cybok is searching out God, and that's a failure. Starfleet sends the Enterprise in particular because they say we specifically need Kirk and the Enterprise to carry the flag. And that's a failure, because when they get there, Cybok A doesn't know that Kirk's the captain of the Enterprise. He accepts Chekhov as the captain of the Enterprise. B, he doesn't even recognize that Chekhov is wearing a commander's rank insignia, not a captain's rank insignia. So Starfleet's effort of showing the flag by sending their most famous ship with their most famous captain... That's a failure, because Cybok is astonishingly stupid and ignorant. <laughs> well, you know, the schedule of a revolutionary is full. He might not be up on current events or military iconography. That is true. Current events? This is 25, 30 years after the original series. Yeah. You know, now that I'm thinking about it, there is a weird sort of way that when you describe the film this way, it sort of reminds me of The Seventh Sign. Like, it's just a bunch of people who are kind of stuck on this quest because somebody doesn't want to die. And, um, yeah, they're all kind of just people who don't really have much going on. And, of course, you have the very first scene of the movie, the pre-credits sequence, where Cybok kind of enthralls the first follower we see who is just kind of in the desert and... Digging holes. Yeah, in the desert, digging holes. He's pretty much given up. He's this desperate person in this desperate place, which, of course, is the sort of person who's ripe for a cult leader slash revolutionary, whatever you want to call him. Are we ever told why he's digging holes or what he's looking for in, like, tiny four-inch holes only a few feet apart from each other? Um, moisturizer? Yeah, everyone from Nimbus 3 looks like one of the total recall mutants at just the very beginning of the mutation process. There was one person in there in the scene where they actually attack Paradise City. And I have to admit that the whole time that they were attacking Paradise City, I was singing, take me down to the Paradise City where the grasses and the girls have three... T anyway. Um... <laughs> But uh, there was one who kind of looked like a Ferengi if you squinted. And that is my headcanon for this. Is yes. That there's a Ferengi on Nimbus 3. There was that one guy who he had like a ring of hair that started at his ears and a giant oversized bald head. Yes. I do think, though, that some aspects of this could have been very interesting. I think the idea of a Vulcan cult leader is very interesting. Especially since a lot of the ways that he brainwashes people probably have to do with the Vulcan latent telepathic ability. Yeah, exactly. The, yeah. Way, the way he draws memories and creates visions as part of this uh, dark enlightenment. Oh, dear. <laughs> oh, you... You mentioned earlier that you thought it was weird that the... TV show and the movie had nothing to do with each other. 
on the next generation there's a famous children's song called the laughing vulcan and his dog that's got to be about cyborg that's not being very nice to that first follower of his <laughs> oh well you know this is like a century later stories get mutated with time or by the laughing vulcan and his dog do they mean his blue unicorn it's entirely possible I want to talk more about how Cybok uses people's trauma and people's pain. Because I think that is what leads to a lot of the character moments in the movie and a lot of what I think is the best part of the movie when he's going through the traumas of the big three. Yeah, we only see that twice. All the other people, that all happens silently or it happens in their minds or whatever. We only see him actually do that twice. Yeah, I do kind of wish we'd gotten... That would have been a way to kind of flesh out the characters of the non-Big Three regulars. You know, if we had seen, what's Uhura's trauma? Or what's Chekhov's? Like, does he know deep down inside that all those things were not invented in Russia? <laughs> <laughs> But we get to this scene in the observation lounge, whatever they actually called it, the, the Enterprise-A equivalent of 10 forward. Right. Where we do McCoy's big trauma, which, because he's a doctor, because the foundation of his character is that he is the man who heals, has to do with him failing to heal. Again, it's another failure in his past that's kind of formed a bit of his core. And this also kind of trades a little bit on the moment, because I think circa 1989 euthanasia was a much bigger topic than it is today. Although... Yeah, it's not like it's not a topic anymore. It, mm. it is still a topic, and I think it probably should be more. I think that a lot of people avoid death, run away from it, the way Kirk learned he was doing in Star Trek 2. Yeah. There is a massive failure to acknowledge this thing that enters everyone's life. And I think that's a conversation that needs to happen more. I don't think Star Trek 5 is the thing that's starting this conversation, but I appreciate the effort. <laughs> and that was actually one of the more effective scenes. Yeah, that was a scene that, to be completely honest, this is the first time I've seen this movie since my parents died. And that was a scene that I wasn't exactly looking forward to. <laughs> that sort of thing is a little rough for me in movies now. Yeah. Uh, Scott, I don't know if it's the same way for you. No, it didn't affect me in that way. I mean, I, I have that reaction to some things. I have that reaction to a lot of cancer depictions. Yeah. Well, I, I have that reaction more to cancer cures, <laughs> but it didn't quite affect me that way because I think maybe because my general opinion on that whole issue was so set in stone even before mom and dad went through what they went through, like that didn't really change my opinion, it just sort of reinforced it. So maybe watching dying people suffer isn't quite the foundational trauma for me as it is for you. Might be. Hmm. Um, Eric, what is, um, <laughs> Eric, what's your relationship with death? Um, you know, that's, that's an interesting question. I just returned from 
the funeral of a friend's mom. And oddly enough, I have a very, very ridiculously, luckily small number of, like, related, like, I still have one of my grandparents. I still have all of my parents. There's very little, like, very few people. I have lost very, very few people close to me, and I'm very lucky in that. But it's also a little bit strange at this time, and uh, like, at my age, to have so many people that I've still got. And that was something that I was thinking about, actually, this weekend. Um, I know these decisions are definitely looming in my future, but I haven't had to make any yet. And on the one hand, I'm extremely lucky. I, I'm very aware of that. On the other hand, it seems weird. Like, suspiciously lucky. Like, I don't know. Right. Well, obviously, the depiction in this movie isn't really going to go into the full horror of the thing. Mm. You know, it's a very sort of filmic version of that dilemma. Yeah. You know, McCoy's father is aware. He is cognizant of everything that's happening to him, and he is making an informed request. Right. Which often is not the case. No. Yeah, so, so that doesn't even really get into the, the thornier, grayer areas of the euthanasia debate. Right. Yeah, that's almost like an ideal situation, as much as it's ghoulish to call that situation ideal. Yeah, as close to an ideal as you can come in a situation where somebody is suffering and dying. Right. But the, the person is at least conscious and lucid and aware and making a clear and informed choice. And even then, it's horrifying. Right. Maybe for me more than others, and that's fine, that's just what happens. But that is a character note for McCoy that is at the same time both completely retconned and sensible. Yeah, no, it certainly, like, it certainly goes quite well with what we know about the character. And what we know... His priorities are his beliefs and the the foundational like stuff he is made of. As well as the essential humanism that he's expressed over and over again. Because he wasn't looking at the case of his father dying in a sort of standoffish technical way. Oh, this is a disease that we don't know how to treat. He's not making this decision mechanistically. He's making it based on his human understanding. This is a person who is asking me to do something. You know, because he's awake and lucid and making an informed decision. That is what's forming his motivation at that point. The only thing... I don't want to say the only thing... One of the things that is giving him so much conflict over it is just the convenient movie aspect that we found a cure later on. I could have saved him. Maybe. Maybe. And that's the thing they don't get into, go into a lot of details on, because they don't go into a lot of details of that. It's just a one short bit. It's just, it's not something that really depicts the situation or goes deeply into the situation. It just sort of presents the situation. Though at the same time, I would I would argue that, again, it works pretty well for McCoy because he's got that sort of pessimism 
that would quite naturally flow out of a situation like that. Like, I made this decision doing the best that I could for my father, and then a week later they found a cure. Because of course they did. A week later, or a month later, or a year later, or whatever it was. Well, you could, you can definitely see the through line of that experience that he had with his father into every time he treats someone as a doctor and his dedication to treating someone and healing someone. Mm. You could also draw a parallel to what McCoy does in the original series in For the World is Hollow and I've Touched the Sky when he himself finds out he has a terminal illness. Mm. And how he handles that news and how he decides to handle the end of his life when he thinks it's going to end. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Following that, of course, was another exploration of Spock from the perspective of his foundational traumas. And as always, Spock's foundational trauma is as an outsider. He is shown in his vision, his birth, his rejection by Sarek, which again, in Star Trek IV, had just been resolved. Mm. The movie is, again, hitting on his dual nature as human and Vulcan, and his rejection from both sides. Watching this from the context of 2016, you almost want them to splice in the scenes with Child Spock from Star Trek XI. Yeah. Yeah, they would definitely fit. Almost better than the birth scene. They would fit. Yeah, or some of the bullying scenes from yesteryear in the animated series had also hit on this particularly hard. Those two. Mm. But, of course, what Cybok doesn't know is that Spock has spent each of these movies integrating his identity. That's Yeah, that's been the story of Spock in the first... in all the movies, really. Which is kind of interesting because it kind of puts the lie to a lot of what Cybok's been doing to people, or maybe Cybok's just too close, and instead of showing Spock his actual pain, like, what is what is unresolved, what may be unresolved, he's showing him something that is mostly resolved, something that Cybok would just guess is Spock's pain, because he remembers what Spock was like when he was a kid. Yeah, Cybok is too close to the situation to really find Spock's true unresolved pain. Like, psychiatrists won't treat family members. And I don't understand why I'm so focused on the costuming in these movies, but the thing that jumped out at me about that birth scene was that the Vulcan midwife was wearing a clearly logical and functional giant tiara. <laughs> and earrings the size of my fist. And she's birthing a baby with gold nail polish. Clearly logical gold nail polish. Perhaps Vulcan births are a lot less messy. <laughs> Even than human movie births, which would yeah. be something. <laughs> I mean, unless Vulcans spring forth fully formed from someone's forehead, I don't know how you get less messy than a movie birth. <laughs> but, again, of course, 
The thing that Cybok doesn't know is that Spock has reinforced his family relationship with the crew, and that then that allowed him to reinforce his family relationship with his family. And now Cybok is here to test it, but his test obviously is not going to be enough. It can't even sway Spock for a second, really. Yeah. I believe there was, in the early drafts of this movie, one of the big things that happened was that McCoy and Spock were persuaded or some mechanism happened that got them to leave Kirk and betray him temporarily until the end of the movie, I assume. Um, Leonard Nimoy saw that draft and objected in the most vociferous terms. And then D. Kelly saw that draft and objected in the most vociferous terms. (laughs) And then, you know, Shatner, who was obviously developing the movie, went, went along because he figured... As an actor and as someone who's very close with his character, he figured they, as actors, would be very close with their characters. And then figured, you know, if someone came in and wrote a script where Kirk betrayed everyone, I might be mad too. (laughs) So, I noticed that Shatner had writing credits on this one and there were two other writers. Do we know how, like, who had the primary... You know, who who was actually the primary writer, or if there was one? Well, there was, there was one guy credited with the script. There was a split story by and then script credit. There was only one guy credited with the script. Oh, okay. And the story was credited to the guy who wrote the script and William Shatner and Harv Bennett, the producer. Right. So I don't know exactly what the process was between the three of them, but it's it makes sense that the director and the producer had input on the story. I don't know how much they had, if it was mostly the third guy, or if it was the three of them together and the third guy was just brought in to do the script for them. I don't know exactly how that worked. Mm. I believe it worked roughly like that. I know the initial uh, pitches for the movie were developed mostly by Bill Shatner including a pitch that he delivered right to one of the Paramount producers that got the movie greenlit. From what I've read, Shatner's original ideas were a lot more character-based, a lot more kind of esoteric. Someone described his first pitch as more of a tone poem than a sci-fi movie. Hmm. Which... Interesting. Yeah, I, I think because... You can kind of intuit from a lot of the things that Bill Shatner does, all the way from his Transformed Man album in the 60s to all of his musical albums and his turn into self-parody over the course of the 80s and 90s and today, that he is someone who is very interested in theatricality. As much, if not more, than Leonard Nimoy, which we discussed in, especially in Star Trek Three, but the interest for the two of them expressed themselves in different ways. You see, especially in Shatner's earliest musical output, again, that Transformed Man album is something I think is really important for understanding him as an artist. The sort of combination of pop music and classical theater and poetry in that album is something that I think really locks into his interests a lot. And seeing that his pitch was more like a tone poem really puts that in mind. And so I think 
that could have been a very, very interesting movie. I'm not sure it would have been a Star Trek movie. But I, I kind of wish he'd gotten to make it. <laughs> so maybe uh, Seventh Sign was a little closer than I thought. Maybe. And so, of course, Cybok then tries to probe Kirk's foundational traumas. And Kirk rejects him entirely with the, the big Kirk speech of the movie. That, that's something else that... One aspect of this movie I want to highlight is that a lot of it feels like a, just a big episode of the original series. Mm. They're looking for God. It's a false God. There's the Kirk speech to the nominal villain. The effects are kind of dodgy. <laughs> there's the near nudity. Uh, there's the dodgy fight scene. There's a lot in this movie that, that puts me in mind of the original series. And I don't think that's a bad thing, really. You know what? If it was about an hour long and somebody had taken another pass at the script, it would have been actually a really good episode of the original series. Yeah, I think this movie was another victim of the 1988 Writers Guild strike. Oh, yeah. Did that affect movies? I thought that was only TV writers. I have read in various places that pre-production was stalled and shortened because... The script was interrupted by the writer's strike. At hmm. the same time, I rattled off a list of solid movies toward the beginning of this show that hmm. don't seem to have suffered very much. Well, I don't know if I go that far. How many of those movies you rattled off actually have a reputation of being really good other than Batman? Honey, I Shrunk the Kids is, you know, good enough. It's a popular, hmm. funny movie, but it's not an all-time classic. I don't think any of those movies has a reputation for being a mess, or badly written, particularly. Well... Ghostbusters fans are not fans of Ghostbusters 2. Okay. Nightmare on yeah, Elm Street 15. And... Okay, I'm okay. I'm thinking mostly of Indiana Jones and Batman there. Okay, Indiana right. Jones is really good, but I mean, Weekend at Bernie's, you're not going to hold that up as an all-time classic. No, I, I, I just... Okay. Though, at the same time, The Abyss was pretty good. Like, certainly for a late 80s sci-fi film, it stands out pretty well. Lethal Weapon 2, if I remember correctly, that's one of the most highly regarded installments of that franchise. Not that that franchise has aged well or weathered the craziness of its star, but I have this sense that it is well regarded among the group. Do the right thing. I mean, there's also, you know... Friday the 13th, 8, and Nightmare on Elm Street 5, but hey, what the hell. Right. But at any rate, I don't think there's one thing to blame for all of the issues with the movie, but there are differing aspects. Well, I think one of the big problems with the movie, other than, you know, the effects look like crap, and all, some of the sets look like crap, and the story itself... You can argue one way or the other. One thing I noticed in this movie watching it this time that I never noticed before and I think is a big problem with parts of this movie is for a lot of this movie, especially in the first half, they still seem to be in Star Trek IV comedy mode. And they don't really transition back into more serious, regular Star Trek movie mode until fairly late in the film. 
in too many scenes, the tone is that sort of light, laugh-it-up comedy tone from Star Trek IV, and it just doesn't fit because they're trying to tell a more regular, normal Star Trek story, which doesn't fit with that comedy tone. I think a lot of those scenes are the ones that work best, though. There are only a couple yeah. of the big dramatic scenes that I think really, really work. Do those scenes really work, or are they just there's a quick laugh in there, but it doesn't really fit with the rest of the movie? It's not comedy per se but it is kind of light and unfortunately for the film like by the time they transition to a more serious tone the combined weight of the mistake like the story missteps and things like that and the things that kind of don't follow it just makes the story kind of lifeless and limp and flat i mean once you get to the serious tone you have a klingon who's just yeah, I'm going to take my bird of prey and go bag the Enterprise, creating a big intergalactic incident in the neutral zone because, shit, I can do it. Let's see what happens. And you have, you know, Cybok with only a handful of his followers taking over the Enterprise because at some point they just decide, oh, well, this is the part where we have to let him take over. The one scene that jumped out at me is actually fitting is... After they get to the Eden planet, when they're all heading off the bridge and Kirk just sort of says, you know, come on already, God's a busy man. That's the sort of comedy bit that fits into a Star Trek movie. Ooh. The earlier part where they're like comedy bantering while they're in the brig and all the earlier scenes that are just, just too light. Like, Sulu and Chekhov getting lost in the woods, that's at the very beginning of the movie, and you can almost excuse that. Like, okay, there's a little bit of carryover at the very beginning with the camping and with Sulu and Chekhov getting lost in the woods, but after that, they need to tone it down to get back into a Star Trek feel, and they don't really tone it down and get back into a Star Trek feel until after they're through the Great Barrier. By the way, Chekhov and Sulu are on shore leave together. Ladies and gentlemen, start your ships. <laughs> Scotty and Uhura are bantering on the bridge Start your ships People hate the Scotty and Uhura bits from this movie Oh my god They hate that almost as much as they hate Cybok Did that Does that show up in any other places? Or is that just for this movie? I think it's pretty much just in this movie. I don't think there's anything in Star Trek VI that necessarily points in that direction. No, I don't think so. But people hate the Scotty in Uhura, if you even want to call it a relationship in this movie, almost as much as there are people who hate Uhura and Spock in the new movies. They just really hate whenever Uhura gets put in a ship with someone. wonder why that might be. Hmm. Hmm. It is a mystery for the ages. <laughs> I didn't mind it. I mean, I don't really care one way or the other. It's not really explored much, so I don't really have much of an opinion on it. I don't have any great objection to it. I do like when Scotty knocks himself out by walking into a beam, which is also the sort of comedy scene that would fit in Star Trek Four, but doesn't really fit in an actual normal Star Trek story. But when he wakes up and Uhura tries to like profess her love for him or whatever... And he has that line that, you know, I can't take it in my current state, or yours, which is a nice moment of Scotty advocating for fully informed consent. Yeah! 
Scotty is not a frat boy taking advantage of people. That was a nice touch. I don't think they knew what they were... Well, no, maybe they did. I honestly don't know. I don't know if they put that much thought into it, like the way that you would, like if you're on Tumblr in 2016 talking about that issue. Yeah. But it was definitely... Scotty's point there, it was not trying to say something else and it's just being misinterpreted. Scotty's point right there was, whatever you say right now, you're not in your right mind and so it doesn't mean anything and I don't want you to say anything about our relationship, if it's a relationship, until you are back in your right mind and I can trust that what you're saying is actually what you want to say and what you mean to say. Right. I mean, there's no other way to interpret that scene. No, there really isn't. Or at least, I cannot find a way to do it. Yeah, that, that is definitely a good note for Scotty, who otherwise spends about two-thirds of the movie fixing the transporter. Yeah. <laughs> yes, he does spend an inordinate amount of time on that transporter. Um, I want to get back to Cybok's aggressive group therapy scene for a moment. And the Kirk speech. The, the famous, I need my pain speech. First off, what could possibly be Kirk's foundational trauma? I mean, I know from reading Tumblr in the year 2016 that most people would probably say Tarsus IV. Well, but... if, you, if you read the William Shatner Star Trek novels that he wrote in the 90s and 2000s, he would probably say Tarsus IV. Was that mm. a big part of the Shatner novels? I do not remember that. Yeah, that was a significant part, yeah. In, in the first trilogy. Wow. Ooh. It's been a very long time since I read any of those. I did not remember that in there, but that's neat. In his second and third novel, particularly, I think, there was a, uh, a lot of that was involved, like, repressed memories, or pro possibly erased memories that he recovered, or a lot of that related to the trauma he experienced on Tarsus IV. And I think his line in this movie about, I always knew I would die alone, is revealed in those William Shatner novels as relating to repressed memories from Tarsus IV. Interesting. I think the Tarsus IV thing and the shape that it's taken in fandom to the extent that I've seen is fascinating. And it really shows, like, the degree to which fans synthesize things sometimes a little more than the writers of the actual things. Would you catch me up real fast? Um, uh, I... Yes, uh, Tarsus IV is a colony planet that Kirk lived on as a young man. It's mentioned in the original series episode, The Conscience of the King. Right. Um, where the dictator... Well, there was a, there was a, a famine of some sort. There was, there was a famine, and their, or their food supply was contaminated or whatever. They didn't have enough food to feed everyone on the colony. And so the colony governor was a man named Kodos, and, which is a name you might remember from later Simpsons episodes. Right. Uh, the, the county governor figured out how much food they had and figured out how many people there were and realized we don't have enough food to feed these people until relief supplies arrive. We only have enough food to feed half of these people until relief supplies arrive. Therefore, I am going to kill half of the people so that the other half have enough to eat until relief supplies arrive. And for this crime, he was called Kodos the Executioner. And Kirk was... As a small boy, uh, living on this colony and saw the executions that Governor Kodos ordered so that the other half of the colony would have enough food to eat until relief supplies arrived. 
And there was a whole Star Trek episode in the original series of Kirk trying to track down Kodos. Apparently after this, Governor Kodos went underground, he changed his identity, and Kirk discovers him on the original series. And there's a whole bit about trying to get him to reveal that he is Kodos and find proof that he is that this person that Kirk has fingered is actually Kodos. Yeah, not for nothing is the episode called The Conscience of the King. Right. <laughs> but uh, and, and modern fandom, or young people in fandom now, have sort of glommed onto this because that's sort of the model of fandom in a lot of fandom among younger people on the internet is that's sort of how they work their fandom as they identify these traumas that people have gone through and sympathize with the character for being so wounded by having to go through this. Yeah, and I think it's just fascinating the way that different forms of diversity are read into franchises and characters that in their official forms are not said to possess them, but the way that mental illness narratives are read into Kirk around trauma and anxiety and PTSD about his experiences on Tarsus IV. I just think that's fascinating. I've seen all the episodes of the original series many times, and I have absolutely no memory of this episode. <laughs> I'm not sure why I don't remember it. Well, the Governor Kodos was disguised as a guy named Anton Caridian, and he was a Shakespearean actor. And Kirk suspected that Coridian was Kodos, and so they brought the Shakespeare Company onto the Enterprise. And Kirk had a romance with Coridian's daughter, and it turned out that Coridian's daughter knew that her father was Governor Kodos and was going around killing people who she thought suspected him and she thought threatened to expose him. And so there was a whole murder mystery involved as well. And eventually, once... Caridian discovered that his daughter was murdering people. He admitted that he was Kodos because he didn't want her to be a murderer like he was a murderer. That was the episode. Okay. <laughs> I'm going I'm to have to go look this one up and watch it again and see if I can remember anything about it because you telling me about it actually does not bring anything to mind. That's, that's very strange. Right. Only three seasons of this show, you would think. <laughs> wow. Well, there's there's always something new to discover, right? It's true, or rediscover. Indeed. So that, I think, is the first obvious answer for the sort of thing that Cybok might try to pull out of Kirk. Yeah. And try to force some sort of resolution to that. Although... Perhaps he resolved some of that in the conscience of the king, the way that Spock resolved some of his family issues. But possibly uh, that that depends on what fanfic you're writing. Or you could argue that just doing what he does is how he resolves it. I mean, going and exploring with the the eye of of making the galaxy a better place for all its inhabitants. That's one of the things that. I enjoy most about the character of Kirk is that I've always gotten this impression that he is a person who believes that he has the best job ever and he just loves doing what he does and whatever drives him to do that 
is something that he also cherishes because he loves doing what he does. And I don't know if it's got that much support, but the best character touches are the ones where, and this is actually the first inkling that I've gotten that Chris Pine is okay as, an, as the new Kirk, was in the first trailer for uh, the, new, the new film, where it's just this tiny little subtle character touch when they start playing Sabotage, he's like, that's a good song. You know, just him identifying with it and just showing that he enjoys it, that he's enjoying himself, even in whatever situation. It is nice to have a Kirk with a little joie de vivre, right? Yes, it really is. And that is something that he also has in no small measure in this movie. Which is one of the things I liked best about this whole movie was that this, this was Kirk having a good time most of the time. See, that was one of the things I thought was a drawback because this movie isn't really about Kirk having a good time. He's, his ship doesn't work, his commando raid fails, his ship is taken over by usurpers, this guy tries to undermine his friends... He brainwashes the entire crew into following him. They go through the galactic barrier on some wild goose chase. Kirk shouldn't be having a good time in this movie. He absolutely should. It's just like an episode of the original series. This is familiar territory. This is what Kirk does on a Tuesday. Or did on a Tuesday when he was a young man. Maybe the rest of the parts for the Enterprise A will get there on Tuesday. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> They probably might. Yeah, the transport will be fixed on Tuesday, and the hangar deck will have room for a second shuttle on Tuesday. To go to a, at one time, competing franchise, uh, tomorrow. Boom tomorrow. Always boom tomorrow. <laughs> on that note, I think that we will take a break and hear ads for the podcast network that we're on. And we will be back in just a couple of minutes with more of this great discussion about Star Trek V. We will see you soon. consideration paid for by the following what's up everybody this is kevin kelly make sure you check out every episode of the kevin kelly show right here on the place to be nation place to be nation.com the kevin kelly show every episode is a winner at least we hope 
Basement Nation's Justin Rosero here. In addition to the Kevin Kelly Show, we have a ton of great podcasts available to you on iTunes at PlaysmentNation.com. You can check out Scott Criscolo and me on the Mothership, the Place to Be podcast, with our famous Vintage Vault pay-per-view reviews. PTBN also covers current day wrestling with main event, Mission Indie Possible, and our monthly pay-per-view reaction shows with immediate feedback on WWE, NXT, and Ring of Honor Super Shows. And relive wrestling's past with our monthly pay-per-view rewind series, led by Ben Morse, and the Dangerous Alliance Wrestling Podcast as we dive into various subjects in the form of exercises and games. we got sports covered, too, with the Sports Evolution Mega Show with Scott, Dr. G, Cowboy, and Cowboy Sr., the Kings of Sport, led by Live Audio Wrestling's godfather, Nate Milton, as well as the NBA Team Podcast and the TJ McLoon Show. PTBN tackles pop culture and irreverence with Richard and the Mailman, the Glenn Butler Podcast Hour Spectacular, and if you like a hybrid of all of this in list form, check out Jordan Duncan's Rank and File. All of these shows are available on PlaySpeedNation.com, where we cover pro wrestling, sports, movies, comics, plus tournaments, and more. We want to thank our friends at Boneheads Wing Bar in West Warwick, Rhode Island, and Fall River, Massachusetts, and Scott Keats' Blog of Doom. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr as well. PlaySpeedNation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. This is Parv, and I'm here to tell you to listen and subscribe to the pro wrestling-only Place to Be Nation podcast network. That's the PWO PTBN podcast network, where you'll find a ton of in-depth shows done by hardcore fans. We've got Chris Zellner's one-two punch of Exile on Bad Street and with David Bickenspan, a smash hit between the sheets. We've got Wrestling Culture with Dylan Hales and Dave Musgrave. Goodwill Wrestling and the reaction shows with Good Old Will from Texas. We got This Week in Wrestling with my man Pete and Johnny Sorrow. Stephen Graham and Tim Livingston's Pro Wrestling Super Show. Tag Teams Back Again with Kelly and Marty Sleaze. And a ton of other great shows too. And of course there's Titans of Wrestling and Where the Big Boys Play with yours truly and some dude from down south called Chad. PWO, PTBN, Podcast Network. Lucky episode 13 of the Glenn Butler Podcast, our spectacular, talking about Star Trek V. I'm Glenn, we've got Scott, we've got Eric, and now I would like to get a little more into the plot of this movie, as much as you might not want to, really, (laughs) Uh, because I think the plot, more than the characterization, is the biggest reason why this movie has the reputation that it has and got the reception that it did. In a way, because it's set up a little more like an episode of the original series, and maybe that was something people didn't want in a major motion picture. Maybe that was something people weren't expecting after the last several movies, or all the movies in their own ways, 
had been bigger and deeper, they might have created expectations. The echoes of the original series run deep in this movie, too, even even in the design. Mm. Uh, Scott, I know you were catching on to a lot of the sound effects. Yeah, a lot of the bridge sounds were very reminiscent of the original series. The bleep bloop from controls being hit. The view screen sweep sound. A lot of the bridge sounds in this movie were pulled out of the original series. More about the development of the Barebones plot of this movie. Uh, one of the things that Bill Shatner was fascinated by, and one of the things that kind of marks this movie as, as another touchstone of the 80s, was Shatner got fascinated by televangelists. And the ability of someone to use religion to direct people through charisma alone. I think... In that context, it's a little interesting to translate that to Vulcans. Because you don't really th think of Vulcans as charismatic all that much. No, that's not the first thing that you think of. Right, and, and you see how dangerous Vulcan televangelists would be, let alone Vulcan religious fanatics. The intersection between the two being a matter of opinion, I suppose. <laughs> Um, Eric, I, what, what do you, what do you think about that whole, like, televangelist commercial religion aspect of the construction of this movie? Now, that's kind of interesting, because actually, there's the point, at the very end of the raid on Paradise City, where they try and rescue the delegates, that just completely falls apart at the end, and you don't see how or why it falls apart. And it's just like suddenly Cybok has the upper hand and he keeps it right up until the point where God shows up. It, it's as mystifying to me when people like that in our world suddenly get the upper hand, get everything that they want, have like legions of devoted followers who bankrupt their life savings and put themselves in serious like health jeopardy and housing jeopardy to support these people like it it mystifies me and it's the same sort of wait what the hell how did you how did you even right and and cybok spends a large part of the first portion of the movie kind of preying on people who are already in dire straits and already pretty desperate and i suppose in that way already a little vulnerable to someone like him but again that's a strong parallel to real life televangelists Sure. Yes. I like the distinction that you draw between actual religious fanatics and televangelists who are more like pretend religious fanatics for the sake of theater. Right. It, it's an issue of cynicism. And I think Cybok falls more, much more on the side of an actual religious fanatic. Because he says flat out, you know, we're going through the barrier to meet God. Yeah, we're on a mission from God. And you see that moment of doubt when Kirk says, you're going through the barrier to be God, you're crazy. And you see that moment of doubt on Cybok's face. Even Cybok thinks that Cybok is nuts when he says he's going through the barrier to meet God. Well, you know, it didn't turn out very well. But, hey. I'm curious, because you mentioned this movie came out between season two and three of The Next Generation. It was during season three of The Next Generation was the episode Who Watches the Watchers, wasn't it? Yes, so, 
if you're looking for parallels between the TV production and the movie production... Well, that is a parallel that I thought was rather obvious because the quest for God and the discovery that it's a false god and the fact that this false god turns out to be little more than, you know, a petty bully of some sort with a few superpowers is complete Gene Roddenberry Star Trek story. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That, that is something that was reiterated several times in the original series. It could even be traced to the God thing, which we talked about a little in our Star Trek One show. And it's something that shows up in The Next Generation a few times in... Justice, in the, in the first season, in Who Watches the Watchers. It is something that Roddenberry was interested in from an early date. Well, hell, even, like, Q in The Next Generation. Oh, yeah, totally. Something that strikes me as significantly more powerful than the god of Chakri. You know, he's just kind of a dick. Q, I think, is fascinating in that he was turned into a next-generation take on an original series premise. Mm. Where, in the original series, he would be somewhat lesser. He'd be the man behind the curtain. Ex exactly. He'd be he, Landrew yeah. or something he, like that. He would be Trelane. As, you know, innumerable fan theories attest. But... In The Next Generation, he's brought back occasionally. He does other things than just confront the crew with accusations of barbarism and whatever he does in Farpoint. He gets deepened in a way that none of the other false god super beings did in the original series. It's interesting that you mention Q, because there's a series of novels. There's, I think it's a trilogy. And those premise of that story, and one or one of the premises of that story, it's a book. It's a series that focuses on Q and the Q continuum. And one of the premises of that story is at some point there's a war between the Q continuum and this other group of non-corporeal entities, among which are Gorgon from the original series and the Beta Seven A entity from the Day of the Dove episode of the original series. And the god of shockery that they find in Star Trek V. He is one of these malevolent, antagonistic, non-corporeal entities that is allied in this war with the Q Continuum. And the reason that the Great Barrier exists, according to this novel, is that that's where the Q Continuum imprisoned this entity. And that's why he's trying to escape using the starship. Interesting. Which, of course, brings us to what might be the kirkiest scene that Captain Kirk ever kirked. Oh, it, it is the best. It is the absolute best. Scott, break it down for us. Okay. They go to the Eden planet, which, by the way, is a barren wasteland. Just nice like... use of purple, though. <laughs> That's not a color that, that you see very often in effects-driven movies. As much as this is an effects-driven movie, but, you know, I mean, the, the, the orange-turquoise thing, purple is like an incredible breath of fresh air now. So they're on the... They're, they traverse the barren wasteland. They land the shuttle and then walk a great distance rather than just flying to wherever they're going. And they walk to this random 
plane. I don't know why they stop there in particular. But all of a sudden, rocks grow out of the ground and arch over them until it looks like they're standing in the middle of a brontosaurus skeleton. And then the giant head appears before them and Cybok thinks he's found God and McCoy is in awe and Spock is fascinated and God and Cybok are negotiating for transport fees or whatever and Kirk sticks his finger in the air and Kirk says, excuse me. And Kirk delivers what might be the best line ever delivered in Star Trek. It is probably right behind the end of Star Trek 3 for my favorite scene in this movie series. It is the Kirkiest Kirk that Kirk ever Kirked. Where he sticks his finger in the air and says, Excuse me, what does God need with a starship? It is absolutely the best thing ever compounded because God tries to ignore Kirk, and so Kirk interrupts him and says, I said, what does God need with a starship? It is absolutely, it's my favorite thing ever. This is what you do when confronted with God, is you start asking questions. Yeah. Cybok is the, is the true believer. He's prostrating himself. He'll do whatever God asks him to. It's like the televangelists who get, like, dying people, instead of buying medicine, they send all of their money to the preacher on TV. It's just like that. Cybot's like, sure, we have a ship, we can carry your essence and transmit it to the rest of the galaxy and, and convert everyone and show them the true way. And McCoy's like, wow, look, it's God. This is awesome. And Kirk is like, excuse me. I'm asking questions here, and I want answers here. And Kirk is nitpicking. He has detected a problem with this story's continuity. Yeah. And, and it's great, because McCoy tries to confront him and says, Jim, you don't ask the Almighty for his ID. And the obvious response is, of course we do! This is what we do! We go yeah. around the galaxy asking the Almighty for his ID! We asked Apollo for his ID! We asked Abraham Lincoln for his ID. We go around the galaxy encountering fantastic creatures and we ask them for their ID and a genetic sample and a blood sample and a full physical makeup and library records. This is what we do. That's why we have a science officer instead of a cleric. That's why we have a doctor instead of a shaman. This is what we do. We go around the galaxy and we ask the Almighty for his ID. That is one of the basic messages of Star Trek. People always try to find messages in this show that was really just meant to try to entertain people for an hour a week and stay on television for more than two years. But when people keep looking for messages of it, they're like, oh, it's a depiction of a positive future, and it's not a utopia, but it's a positive future that we can reach if we strive... This is one of the other messages that's in that show. We can go out and find fantastic things and understand them because of the prodigious mind of our science officer. Science applied to the fantastic things in the universe can help us understand those fantastic things. And that's what Kirk is doing. That is exactly what they do on the Starship Enterprise. They ask the Almighty for his ID so that he can be added to their library records and everyone else in the Federation can look up on their consoles and know more about it. That is what they do. It's a differing conception of enlightenment, isn't it? 
in contrast to seeking the divine and then basking in it, it's seeking the appearance of the divine and investigating it. Yes. Or hell, even if it turned out to be the divine itself, seeking the divine and investigating it. Exactly. Because there's plenty of questions that need to be answered, and plenty of nits that need to be picked. I mean, that's the responsible reaction to the manifestation of the divine. What the hell are you doing? Why? <laughs> and by the way, arguably almost as badass or just as badass as Kirk interrupting to say, wait, excuse me, I asked, what does God need with a starship? Almost equally as badass as that is after God shoots the lightning bolt at Kirk and Spock steps up and says, you haven't answered his question, though. (laughs) (laughs) It's so good. Spock has a great backbone in this movie, right? Oh, yeah, because he also has the later scene with General Cord. Yes. Uh, he, He also basically domineers all the Klingons around by force of will. Yes. (laughs) <laughs> well the Klingons really at that point they're like I, I have to imagine they're like holy shit we just went through the great barrier to a place where we're not supposed to be able to get to just because we're following around the Enterprise because our commander wants to tack Jim Kirk's hide to his wall uh, yeah, yeah. Let's we're, talk- we're really in over our heads right now and I think I wish there was a scene where the commander was like, oh, yeah, shit, I just did all this. <laughs> yeah. How am I going to put this on the report? I have no idea how the Klingon Empire operates, but I'm sure there's got to be a report. And I have a feeling that Klingon reports are not to be undertaken lightly. Yes, very much. Let's talk a little more about the use of the Klingons in this movie. I think in terms of... Having the Klingons there, it makes enough sense given the previous two movies. The fact that Captain Claw is kind of a young gun dirtbag of a Klingon captain who just wants to get Kirk's hide, that all makes enough sense. But, Eric, do you feel the Klingons in this movie are a little tacked on? I think they're more than a little tacked on, though it kind of pays off if you go to the notion of um, Worf's explanation of Klingon religion, that Klingon warriors killed all their gods millennia ago because they were more trouble than they're worth, I, I enjoy the fact that the next time you see Klingons show up, like the, the end time you see Klingons show up, the bird of prey is gunning down God, because that's what Klingons do. I mean, that's their responsible reaction to the divine, is shoot it in the face, because it's more trouble than it's worth. That is excellent. <laughs> that That is great wisdom. <laughs> I know I tend to focus on the minutiae in these movies, like my constant harping on the costuming, which we'll get to more of later. Mm-hmm. There's plenty to get to. We saw the Klingon ship in Star Trek 1, and then we saw the Klingon ship in Star Trek 3, and then we saw the same Klingon ship in Star Trek 4, and now this Klingon ship that's the same model of ship in Star Trek 5... Every time they show up, they have a completely different bridge design. They never use the same set twice. Every single ship, even the same ship six months apart, has a completely different bridge layout. Contrawise, every single Federation ship has a redress of the Enterprise bridge. Basically. 
Well, you know, maybe Klingons just make their bridges modular and the commanders set it up to suit their particular tastes. Yeah, of course, Captain Claw is going to want to have that periscope (laughs) with with the gunner controls. Oh, hell yeah. I want a periscope on my bird of prey. The whole aesthetic of some of the Klingons in this movie is is another vestige of the 80s, I, I feel like. Like Captain Claw's epic hairband hair? Oh yeah, he has like an 80s hair metal wig. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's going sleeveless, like the entire galaxy is invited to the gun show. <laughs> well, clearly it is. With the Klingons, you're always invited to the gun show, I guess. Yeah. One way or another. Well, his first officer, Vixis, is also sleeveless. Yeah. V- Vixis, who is very good with languages. Mm. <laughs> Meanwhile, in in contrast, you have General Cord, who is a kind of Klingon we hadn't really seen before. I don't think we'd ever seen a Klingon who was, like, old and broken down and had given up. Well, they make the point in the beginning of the movie, where Kirk says General Cord's military strategies were acquired reading when I was at the Academy. He's, like, 40 years out of the Academy at this point, isn't he? Yeah. It's at least 20, 25 years since the original series. He's at least 10 to 15 years out of the Academy as of the original series, depending on what age you graduate the Academy. He's at least 30 to 40 years out of the Academy at this point, and Kord's was already so accomplished that his military strategies are required reading. Exactly how old is General Kord? Apparently, Klingon doesn't crack. <laughs> General Kord's got to be in his 80s at this point. He didn't look that old. Especially living on the planet of Galactic Peace where everyone else looks like an early stage Total Recall mutant. Or David Warner. Yes. (laughs) That's one great contribution of this movie. It introduced David Warner to the franchise. David Warner looks really young in this movie because I'm used to seeing him in, you know, the 90s. Right. Uh, I'm used to seeing him in Babylon 5 or in Titanic or that era. In addition to feeling a little tacked on, the Klingons, especially, you know, Captain Claw and his crew, (laughs) felt a little tepid. You know, the first thing he does in in the movie to be a devious villain type and prove his machismo is blow up a centuries-old Earth probe. You know, that's... Well, you know, if you don't address those things, you know what happens to them. They come back, and they cause way more problems than they're worth. Again, I think this movie actually kind of makes the, the Klingon shoot first policy seem a little bit more sound than it initially appears. Yeah, you know, one probe winds up blown up by a rando Klingon, and another one becomes V'ger. It is a rough-and-tumble galaxy. Yeah. Well, I don't know, is that because the Klingons just aren't very well thought out? Or is that just to show that Claw is not very good at thinking out? Well, one of those goes towards a redemptive reading, and you know I'm all about redemptive readings. Because mm-hmm. I think the point of that really... I don't think they're blowing up a two-century-old Voyager probe to show, Oh, those evil, dangerous Klingons! I think it really was just, you know, this Captain Claw is just dangerous to blow stuff up. Yeah, the, he's a yeah. punk, kind of kicking around yes. waiting for trouble to come. Yeah. He has absolutely nothing better to do with his time. So yeah, it does make sense that the moment he hears that, that Kirk's going to be somewhere, he's like, hey, 
maybe if I go kill this guy, they will actually give me missions to accomplish. <laughs> you really? know, they'll actually have me do something with this bird of prey that I've got. Yeah, he can do something really, like, big and tough and honorable. Which, again, how the hell does the Klingon Empire operate if they've just got birds of prey just kind of, like, yeah, just just go, like, do donuts in the neutral zone for a little while. We'll <laughs> think of something for you to do. Well, that goes toward a continuing narrative that you can kind of impose after the fact that the Klingon Empire during peacetime just doesn't know what to do with itself. And that makes sense. Does the Klingon Empire consider it to be peacetime? Between the Empire and the Federation, I suppose it is, isn't it? So during peacetime, random punk captains just go off to try to blow up a Federation ship just because? As peacetime? For Klingons. <laughs> you know, they, they, they still have their emissary on the planet of galactic peace. So if peacetime is the time when you try to go and blow up your enemy's ship, what do you do in wartime? You send a whole flotilla to try to blow up your enemy's ship. You blow up all your enemy's ships. And their <laughs> planets, and everything else. Obviously I meant Armada. <laughs> what ifs? Like, yeah, I'll, I'll just start an intergalactic instant. It'll be great. <laughs> Speaking of starting galactic incidents, I want to move a little farther back in the movie to Cybok's plan, such as it is. After he brainwashes the diplomats and lays siege to Paradise City... Where the grass is... Oh, wait a minute, we did that one already, sorry. <laughs> he sends a message to the Federation. We're not shown that he sends any messages to the Klingons or the Romulans, because Claw kind of just kind of shows up of his own accord... See, I thought that was just a general message he sent out to everyone. I mean, it has all three hostages in it. Maybe. But he wanted one ship. And he asked for a Federation ship. Yeah, you would think that in order to get that, he'd just need David Warner. I suppose. Maybe they come as a matched set. But It's entirely possible. I mean, I can see where he would think that, and in fact possibly hope that the Klingons will not care. Well, it turns out the Klingons don't care, because they don't send any response. Just Claw shows up gunning for the Enterprise, but nobody comes looking for the hostage. Right, mm. so he asks for a Federation ship, the Federation being the one galactic power of the three that you'd think would be most inclined to negotiate with him, rather than, you know, fire on him from orbit. Yeah. Also, based on available evidence, the one that cares the most about its ambassador. Right. Yeah. Or, or maybe he just figures whoever comes, he can brainwash anyone. Yeah. I, and where are the Romulans in all of this? Not catching the interest of the filmmakers. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> I, I know that's kind of a churlish question, but... But, I mean, after that, Cybok isn't really responsible for messing up the plan as much as it gets messed up. Because his plan, as far as I can tell, is to get a Federation ship, brainwash the captain, and be off on his way. Yeah, you know he much. he he doesn't he's not thinking about a Klingon ship showing up or the Starfleet captain deciding to go on a raid. I mean, talk about cowboy diplomacy. Kirk literally steals his enemy's horses. <laughs> I know. 
Then Kirk draws the Klingons to Nimbus 3 just by having his name. You know, Kirk rolls in with guns blazing, messes everything up. Kirk tries to make a distress call later in the movie when they've shaken the Klingons and draws the Klingons back by telling them exactly where they're going. I mean, Kirk messes up the plane a lot more than Cybok does. Wow. Cybok has a scene where he's talking to Captain Chekhov of the Enterprise, mm. where Cybok doesn't know the most famous captain or that he's the captain of the most famous ship, and he doesn't even recognize rank insignia because he doesn't see that Chekhov is wearing commander's insignia, not captain's insignia, because as I said before, Cybok is remarkably stupid and uninformed. To be fair, I've watched a lot of Star Trek in my life. I don't remember the movie era rank insignia off the top of my head. Well, then you're remarkably stupid and uninformed. Me too. <laughs> How dare you? Well, <laughs> on my podcast. At the very least, it would have come up when he's doing his research to prepare for his hostage taking, or did he just sort of do this flying off the handle? Because I'm on a mission from God, it'll all work out. Ah! Yeah, I, 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 I think the movie speaks for itself as to which he did. Yeah, yeah. I'm thinking it was a little light on the research. Well, that's sort of my point, where he's talking to Captain Chekhov, and Chekhov says, our strike team is coming to take back the hostages, surrender to them, or else. And Cybok is like, you fools! I didn't want bloodshed! And it's like, you took hostages, you dumb fuck! What the hell were you expecting? I didn't want bloodshed. You don't fucking storm the Citadel and take hostages! Well, that's why he sent a message asking for a ship full of the galaxy's Boy Scouts to come negotiate with him. <sighs> we stormed the Citadel with our pipe guns and took hostages from the three major superpowers of the galaxy. But I didn't want bloodshed! <laughs> Damn, he really is a religious fanatic. Righteous yeah, I, right to the end. Not wanting bloodshed after poking the Klingons seems a little, <laughs> a little optimistic. We'll go with optimistic. Okay, so following that, there are a couple of more scenes that I want to talk about. It is time to talk about Uhura's fan dance. When we were watching this, my wife looked up at that point, and she was like, oh, this is the part I remember. Yeah, Eric, <laughs> Eric, uh, please break the sequence down for us. So, yeah, they're on their way, and they're, they're on their way to Paradise City, and I'm not going to sing it, but um, they realize that they've landed a little bit further than they want to be from the actual settlement. And they're all on foot, which seems a little short-sighted, but what the hell. So in order to get there in time, they're going to need some sort of transport. They happen to find some of Cybok's cavalry. And in order to take the horses, or whatever the hell they are, they're going to need a distraction. And the first thing they think of is having Uhura go up with giant feathered fans, which, by the way, they did not take any sort of ground transportation, but they did bring this costume. I just want to make that clear. They did have the costume. Well, okay, they could probably make it with a replicator, but still. They at least had the fans. Yeah, they had the fans. 
Uh, and so the cavalry being quite fascinated by this song, which, by the way, how are they broadcasting this song? Like, how is it reaching them? She just has a great voice. And fair enough. I believe it. She has amazing legs for a woman her age. And they obviously come right up. And all of the rest of the Federation strike team is on the other side of the ridge with guns. And apparently this is how you get horses. Now, I want to see the Federation tactical manual that says, have a member of your senior staff, a decorated officer, dress up as a Vegas showgirl and get up on a ridge to sing to the people you intend to ambush. Yeah, I have so many questions about this scene. Foremost, like, whose idea was this? Yeah, yeah. Okay, I'm of two minds about this scene, and I'm wondering where you guys come down on this. Is it, A, a good thing, overall, that the movie has what mass media would consider an older woman owning her sexuality? Or is it too problematic that she apparently went along on this mission just to do a fan dance, and her siren song is what does in the rubes with the horses? Scott, what do you think? What are we doing here? I want to hate this scene. I want to decry the sexism that goes into this scene. And by the way, all of these people on the planet of the Galactic Peace, apparently the only woman on the planet is the three-breasted cat in the club. Which, by the way, is the three-breasted cat lady in the club just a random thing that they stuck in? Or is that a reference to Gene Roddenberry originally wanting Counselor Troy to have three boobs on Next Gen? No, I think it's just a random thing, because they do the same thing... I've referenced this several times. They do the same thing with one of the mutants in Total Recall. Yeah. She has three breasts. So I think yeah. it's just a, yeah. a sci-fi thing. You yeah. know, what are we going to do to show that these people are not quite completely human? Oh, give me an extra boob! Yeah, and then and then yeah. shortly afterward, Captain Kirk murders the sex worker. But anywho... I yeah, I know. That's that's just messed up. Like, did she die? Clearly, she must have died because there were, she was face down in water and there was no bubbles. Yeah, Kirk didn't even do anything. He just sort of threw her off. Yeah. Like, what actually killed her? Unless that's not water he threw her into. Uh, who knows? But getting back to uh, Uhura. I want to hate this scene. I wanted to cry the staggering amounts of sexism that go into the construction of this scene. And the thing, the only thing that stops me is that Michelle Nichols loved this scene. Michelle Nichols loved the opportunity to do shit like this. Michelle Nichols may well have requested this scene. I don't know specifically about this. I know she re specifically requested the skirt version of the uniform that she wears. Again, something I'd wanted to cry the sexism of designing a skirt version of the uniform just so that the women can have skirts while the men wear pants, but your female star specifically requested a skirt version of the uniform, so I can't hate it. And the same thing with this scene. I can't hate it as much as I feel like I should because it's the sort of thing that Shell Nichols loved. 
She loved this scene. She loved the opportunity to do this scene. So I can't crap on it as much as I feel like I should want to. Eric, where do you stand on all this? Well, I mean, it's it, it's also kind of a truism that things that seem progressive at one point are always going to look regressive later. And that's actually a good sign. You know, I am going to have to come down on the side of more towards A than towards B. I'm really kind of pleased that she got this scene, she got to do it, she loved it, even though it's kind of ridiculous. And it has a lot of problematic and regressive elements in it. It's very, very difficult to make something not only progressive in the context in which something is created, like fully progressive on all levels. Because, I mean, you're always going to fail in terms of representation somewhere. You're always going to fail, and, and eventually you're going to fail as society's understanding of things changes and evolves. But it's still, like, there's part of it that just sticks in the back of my throat. And like, what the hell is going on here? Why, why is this the plan? How is this the plan? Yeah, yeah, that's, I think those are all very good points. And by the way, listener, welcome to the uh, problematic white liberal section of the Glenn Butler Podcast Hour Spectacular, as mentioned in our Star Trek Three episode. Sorry. <laughs> don't, don't be sorry for that. I spend a lot of time on Tumblr. Oh, me too. Hey, if you're apologizing for being a white liberal, you really are a white liberal. Yeah, yeah, it's true. <laughs> so, here's something that I was thinking about. Yeah? Um... The part where they've just crashed in the landing bay and Spock has the, the pipe gun trained on Cybok and Kirk is just absolutely freaking out for Spock to shoot him. And then Spock doesn't and Cybok takes the gun and that's it. Like, Spock... There's a lot of other things that Spock or Kirk could do I mean, these these are two guys who are no strangers to fisticuffs. Yeah, you could you could have shot him in the kneecap, or shot him in the shoulder, or something. He didn't have to murder him or flat out if he didn't want to. He's a Vulcan. He can shoot him in the chest. You could yeah. nerve pinch him. <laughs> um, yeah. Or Kirk could just jump on him from behind, and we could get some good old fashioned dun 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 sleeper hold. Yeah. yeah, Kirk can do more of the worst wrestling moves in the galaxy as he did in the series. Um, I think that's another moment where the exact flow of the movie and the exact flow of a scene was sacrificed to the things that the drama needed and the things that the story needed to put in place. Mm -hmm. They wanted to have the moment where Spock faltered because he couldn't shoot his brother to introduce the fact that he was his brother, and let's get on that. Oh, good lord, everyone hated that. There's so much fandom hatred. Fandom is a fucked up place, and as we say from the wrestling fandom, smarks ruin everything. 
<laughs> as soon as the news came out, there was like rumors leaked that Spock was going to have a brother in the movie. All the old school Star Trek people hated the idea. Gene Roddenberry, who back in 1979-1980, after he got fired from the franchise after the motion picture, went around saying, well, if they make Star Trek without me, it's not real Star Trek. And then he stopped saying that after Wrath of Khan came out and was hugely popular. Partly because he's back involved in Star Trek with the Next Generation production starting in 1987, and partly because of the outrage about giving Spock a brother, he got back on the train saying, well, they're giving Spock a brother, but I didn't give Spock a brother, so really Spock doesn't have a brother, because that's not real Star Trek. DC Fontana, who was a writer on the original series and did some writing for in the early days of Next Generation... She wrote an entire novel for the Simon & Schuster Pocket Books novel line. She wrote a novel specifically to refute the idea that Spock had a half-brother. <laughs> After the rumors started to go around they were going to give Spock a half-brother, but between the time those rumors circulated and the time the movie came out, she wrote and submitted and published a tie-in novel where she gave Sarek a line, or she gave Spock a line saying that Sarek only had one son and Spock was the only son of Sarek, specifically to refute the idea that Spock could have a brother, like is being presented in Star Trek V. Fandom crapped on that idea so hard. You know, hearing you talk about that in such vociferous terms now, it reminds me a little bit of Doctor Who fandom after the TV movie in 96 and the half-human on my mother's side line. Probably where, very similar, yeah. Where people rushed to declare it non-canon. Yeah. Because canon is a thing that's important to people. And, yes. And, you know, invalid. As if there are elements of fictional stories that are any more real than other elements of fictional stories. But just such a reaction that feels a little parochial. Yeah. I mean, it's not... I can see where it kind of undercuts some of the things about Spock's character that are important. Like his outsider status that it would make sense that he wouldn't have other siblings because then, I don't know, it would make sense that he wouldn't have other siblings, even half-siblings, because with a half-sibling, like, he would still grow up with this person. I disagree. I think it actually reinforces Spock's character in a lot of ways. Because Spock's motivating factor through most of the original series and the early part of the movie franchise... Spock is all about trying to suppress his human feelings, his human emotions, and trying to be as Vulcan as possible. And all the scenes from yesteryear and from the 2009 movie with young Spock being bullied by the other Vulcans because he's so human and he doesn't, he's not stoic enough, he's not Vulcan enough. All of that is reinforced if he has a fully Vulcan half-brother who he's constantly being compared with. Not only that, but his fully Vulcan brother 
eschews Vulcan philosophy and decides to embrace his emotions, that puts all the more pressure on Spock to summarily reject all emotions, even though biologically he has them more than the Vulcans do. That puts all the more pressure on Spock to be the straight-laced, perfect model of Vulcanism, as opposed to his full-blooded brother who embraced his emotions and left. Oh, wow. I Now I am thinking of this as our family when you refused to have a bar mitzvah and you rejected Judaism and then the pressure came down on me as the younger brother, like, you're going to have it and you're going to do it and you're going to do all of these things that your older brother disappointed us on. Now yeah. Spock is the one who Sarek looks at him and says, you are going to perform the Kolinar. <laughs> Well, not the colon R specifically, but that is an excellent analogy. Yes, all all of the added pressure on you, like if you had tried to stand up and say, I'm not having a bar mitzvah, it would have been ten times worse for you than it was for me. And it's the same sort of thing. When Spock tried to say, well, I'm not going to go to the Vulcan Science Academy, I'm going to go to Starfleet Academy and join Starfleet. Steric didn't talk to him for 10, 15 years. And it was ten times worse on Spock than it, than it probably was on Cybok, because it was compounding the disappointment. Hmm. Alright. Though, actually, uh, th this gives me a, a question on, on Vulcans, and I, I was under the impression that Vulcans had emotions, they just suppressed them very, very strongly because they'd found that they really couldn't operate very well with them, and it caused all sorts of problems, so it would almost make sense to postulate that Spock might have an easier time processing emotions than Cybok would. The Vulcans are sort of presented in that sort of mutually contradictory fashion. That, A, Vulcan emotions are supposedly much stronger than human emotions, and they were so strong that it was tearing their society apart, these wild emotions that they had, and so they had to suppress them, because without suppressing their wild, violent emotions, they couldn't form a cohesive society that would hold together. On the other hand, it's stated many, many times that Spock has less emotional control than a full-blooded Vulcan because his human half doesn't have as much emotional control as his Vulcan half. Mm. Okay, that's fair enough. So if you really dig into it, you're right, that would make sense, but it's just not presented that way, and so we have to fan-theorize some explanation for it that makes sense, you know? When, when, yeah. when the show presents you two mutually contradictory things and you somehow have to make both of them work, that's what fan theories are for. Bad. Yeah, that's and, exactly and, what fan theories are for. And that is something that this movie excels at. Oh, but, God, but, yeah. But yeah, if you look at it from that way, I mean, you can look at it and say, no, Spock doesn't have a brother, but you can look at it from the other way and see how it almost makes more sense for his character to have had that full-blooded Vulcan brother to be constantly compared to, and his older brother who was a disappointment that added more pressure on him to live up to all of Sarek's expectations. It almost makes more sense for him to have that brother than not. Again, you know, if you're willing to accept the possibility and look at it and do a little fan theorizing, it could work. There's no reason why it's anathema to everything else in Star Trek. No, it's true, and actually, I, I have to put a lampshade on the fact that Spock's character stems so much from Sarek's disappointment, which is, as one knows, an emotion. 
But then again, I always thought that the Vulcan logic thing was kind of a put-on in a lot of ways. Well, the Vulcan logic, Vulcan detachment and unemotionality and pure logic is often a veneer which they use for their elitism and bullying in many instances. Yeah, there are later uh, iterations of Star Trek that got a lot of guff for making Vulcans out to be jerks. But if you look back in a lot of the Vulcan episodes and a lot of the Vulcan involvement throughout the history of the franchise, Vulcans are kind of jerks. Before we wrap things up, there are just a couple more topics that I want to get to. The first is something, Scott, that we've been tracking through all of these movies, and that is the costuming. I always harp on the costuming, and I, I always notice it in these movies now. Because mm -hmm. I'm watching it with a more analytical eye, rather than, rather than just watching it to enjoy the movie. I hope so. A couple of things jumped out at me, the costuming in this movie. When Kirk first gets back in the Enterprise, he starts wearing that velour jacket version of the uniform that Scotty had in Star Trek 3 and 4, and that Adam Amaro had in the bar scene of Star Trek 3. So that's still around. <laughs> Scotty's still in the black vest that he started wearing in the middle of Star Trek 4, where somehow he got a uniform change when no one else in the movie got to change clothes. Well, you know, he's crafty. Yeah. <laughs> McCoy, returning to the topic of McCoy's epic lapels. Yes. At the beginning of the movie, he's wearing this like fur-lined denim jacket, which has an epic ring completely around the neck. It doesn't have much down the chest in terms of lapels, but I'm going to count it because it goes all around his neck and over his shoulders, so I'm going to count it as epic lapels, at least in the family of epic lapels. And as part of this Star Trek series that we're doing, I think this is going to bring us to the close of Dr. McCoy and his lapels. Well, that's what I was about to say. Ah. Uh... Because at the end of the movie, they go camping again at the end of the movie, and McCoy is wearing just like a regular shirt. It has a little bit of a collar, but no real lapel at all. Well, maybe the lapels are where he kept his pain. <laughs> and he only appears in uniform in Star Trek VI, as far as I recall. So... This is the only scene, like a minute or two at the end of Star Trek V, is the only scene in the entire movie franchise where we see McCoy in civvies without epic lapels. Yeah, it's sad. At least he has that paisley bandana around his neck. That is true. <laughs> that, that is pretty swank. And while we're talking about their costuming when they're camping... To follow up on a discussion we had in Star Trek IV, saying that the Michelob and Yellow Pages and everything in that movie would probably be the last bit of product placement we'd have until Star Trek XI, apparently the clothing that they're wearing when they're camping in Yosemite is just Levi's jeans off the rack. <laughs> and that was paid placement by Levi's? They're, cre they're in the end credits. Huh. So... I was wondering if the, the climbing shoes were product placement, too, because we saw a lot of those climbing shoes in the first, in the first like, Yosemite scene. Yeah. Did they have any kind of recognizable logo on them, though? I, didn't, I don't remember. There was some logo on it, but it looked like a, you know, space climbing logo. Huh. Yeah. 
It wasn't like a swoosh or something. No. <laughs> no, it was a United Federation of Swirlies. The clothes that they show people wearing are always like mirroring modern clothes. It's like our modern interpretation of what people are going to be wearing in 200 years. And of course, in 1979, what they imagined McCoy would be wearing in 200 years was a chest-revealing jumpsuit and a giant medallion. And by 1989, what everyone thought they'd be wearing in 300 years was Levi's jeans and a flannel shirt. Well, considering jeans and a flannel shirt had been around for over 100 at that point, they it's did... a safer bet than Dr. McCoy being disco stew. They did have jeans in Captain Pike's vision in the cage, didn't they? And flannel shirt. Did they? During the picnic scene? Yeah, you might be right, yeah. Yeah. I don't uh, I don't recall if it was actually literally jeans, but I'm pretty sure he had a flannel shirt. Hmm. So, you know, everyone wants to be comfortable even in the future. Yeah. And what that comfort takes the form of never ever changes. Apparently not. <laughs> I mentioned that Kirk wore the velour jacket from Admiral Morrow in Star Trek 3 and Scotty in 3 and 4. So, like, every kind of different Star Trek uniform variation pops up again. Except those brown ground assault uniforms that they wear in this movie. That is, like, the only variation of the Starfleet uniform between 2 and 6 that did not appear before and does not appear again. Those are one-offs. That's and just as well. A good thing, yeah. Also, of course, we have the continuing saga of the Klingon uniforms, which the uniforms made for Star Trek 1 and the additional ones made for Star Trek 3 just kept getting reused and reused and reused. Like, they would literally cast people in the next generation depending on their body size so that they could fit into the existing Klingon uniforms. Is that why they went sleeveless in this movie? Because one of the uniform's sleeves got damaged? Maybe. And so they it's said, It's entirely possible. Time I know, for a gun I show. costumers, and that's legit. Uh, yeah, and the extra vest slash coat that they made for Christopher Lloyd to use in Star Trek Three went on to be the Klingon commander's cloak. And in this movie, General Cord has the addition of the big overcoat with all the medallions that went on to be used for the Klingon Chancellor who was also played by the actor who played General Cord the first time the Chancellor appeared. Oh, in, was uh, that the same Kimpec. actor who played Kimpeck? I didn't realize that was the same actor. The next thing I want to hit on about this movie is, again, something I want to hit on with all of these movies, and that is the score for Star Trek V, written by Jerry Goldsmith, who is, of course generally acknowledged as a titan in the world of film scoring. He had done Star Trek One, and then spent about ten years away from the franchise. Was brought back for this one. Of course, he brought back his title march from Star Trek One, with not quite the amount of variation, I feel, as it got in Star Trek One, but still more than it would get in several of his later scores. So that's kind of a spectrum. Well, in Star Trek 1, it was the main theme of the movie. In mm. this movie, they're sort of transitioning. To, you know, there's the Busy Man theme. There's the Kirk Spock Love theme. There's other themes that the, that the score is built around other than the main title theme. 
by the time you get to First Contact Insurrection Nemesis, that theme is really just a piece of music they play over the end credits and not a theme of the movie. This is sort of a transition between those two points. Well, it's the times that it's used in the body of the movie kind of fluctuate, and we'll follow that as we do the future movies. But it's still used a few times in, in the body of this movie as the main theme. And, and there are the other thematic ideas going around. Um, by the way, what you call the Kirk Spock love theme is the theme from uh, The Mountain, the main title, and yeah. Cosmic Thoughts at the end of the movie, just in case anyone I guess who isn't into shipping. I is... guess it's really a Kirk Spock-McCoy friendship theme, but I call it the Kirk Spock love theme. And by the way, it's the best theme in this score. I like it better than A Busy Man, and I'm disappointed that it didn't get a more full exploration in a track on its own. Right, well, it's the one thing in this kind of era of Star Trek scoring that is just pure Americana. You know, it really carries that vibe more than any sort of sci-fi vibe. Whereas a lot of the other music in the movie is also part of a spectrum that a lot of Jerry Goldsmith's scores land on, where over the course of the 70s and the 80s and then the rest of his career, he developed quite an interest in synthesizers. Oh, yes. And he began to integrate them into more and more of his scores until it seemed that pretty much all of them had some sort of synth, except for isolated instances. One of his best 90s scores, I think, is The Edge, where he was hired and then asked specifically not to use any synthesizers. And there are sections in that score where you can hear, like, the woodwind section doing a counterpoint that you know was supposed to be a synthesizer. <laughs> but in Star Trek V, he is very much in a phase of his career where he is integrating the synthesizers more and more. There are a couple all-synth scores he did in the 80s, and they don't have a great reputation. Cybok's theme in this movie lives mostly in the synthesizers, but I feel its best versions are in Pick It Up, the, the track that is used in the shuttle bay scene when Spock refuses to shoot him, and it exists when he's telling the crew about Shockery. Uh, when the theme is transitioned from the synthesizer to a horn, and it just has a lot more depth. There are good uses of synthesizers, and there are bad uses of synthesizers. I am generally of the opinion that Goldsmith's synths are not my favorite versions of his music. I think sometimes it can sound dated. Sometimes it can sound bad. Um, in Star Trek One, there was the blaster beam, and there were a few other synthesized elements. And especially the blaster beam, it, it was fresh, it was inventive, it brought a really different sound to that score than most other scores for movies, let alone sci-fi movies. But here... There isn't really anything fresh and inventive like that. This is just a synclavier. I may be butchering that pronunciation. Is it actually German? Is it synclavier? I, I don't know. You're asking me? I'm, yeah. I'm asking anyone in the room. You're asking me, Mr. X Machina, how to pronounce a word? I'm asking the ether. Listeners, correct me if you like. 
Um, Goldsmith is also now using the Alexander Courage fanfare from the original series that was not used at all in Star Trek One, while the body of the theme was used in cues written by a couple other composers, but had been integrated into 2, 3, and 4. And so that was probably expected by this point. And... Well, it had been integrated with the motion picture theme as the main theme to the Next Generation series. That too, yes. Very significant in terms of this score is the fact that it's bringing the motion picture theme back to the original series crew, where by this point it had been the theme to the next generation for two seasons. Yeah. In an arrangement with a TV orchestra, which is going to sound a little different, um, arranged by Dennis McCarthy for the TV series. And so there's an aspect of this that Goldsmith is kind of taking it back and using it again as his theme. There's also an element, if you're someone who's not deep into this, and if you're someone in 1989, you've been watching The Next Generation, and maybe they haven't run the motion picture on TV lately, I don't know, and you go to see this movie, and suddenly it has the Next Gen theme. That was where I was. Because I didn't watch Star Trek 1 that often, because I didn't like Star Trek 1 that much, but I had seen 2 a lot, and I'd seen 4, obviously. And so when I went to go see this, and they started playing the Next Generation theme, that's, that's where I was. Right, definitely. That's something that would have been an experience for a lot of people seeing this movie, I assume. There's also one other kind of motif that Goldsmith uses a lot in this is a uh, four-note figure that he winds up using in his later Star Trek scores as well, which, again, gets a, a little more variation here. It's used in the action music, it's used in some of the more sedate music, and then it becomes kind of the basis of A Busy Man, which is the track from this score that gets played in concerts and things like that. It is the standout theme from this score in many people's minds, and it is not for you. No, I don't like it at all. I mean, I don't want to, maybe I shouldn't say that, maybe I'm being too harsh, too contrarian, but I'm... That entire theme, every part of that theme sounds like either a build-up to something or a transition between one thing and another. No part of that theme sounds like the actual meat of a theme. And so it just leaves me just monumentally disappointed every time I listen to it because I'm always waiting for something that never actually gets there. Right, well, there are really two parts of the cue. There's this sort of more rhythmically driven section at the beginning that is based on that four-note motif and has more of a sort of marching toward destiny vibe. And then it transitions into this, like, light, graceful, religiously tinted mode, which is very different from some other religious-style music that Goldsmith had, had written, one of the things that I forgot to mention when we were talking about the motion picture score was that the cue at the end when Commander Decker melds with V'ger is in such a religioso mold. It sounds very, very close to the music that Goldsmith wrote for The Omen 3 for The Return of Jesus. And 
the second section of A Busy Man in The Final Frontier doesn't have that sort of active religious feel. It, it's more aloof and graceful and mystical. And it really stands out from the rest of the score in that way. And I think that's really why that turned out to be the standout piece in many people's minds. It, it also, um, at one point when the Klingon Bird of Prey shows up on the Enterprise scanners and nobody notices because they're watching the view screen, has the Klingon fanfare integrated into it in a way that is just perfect and just perfectly integrated with the tone of the piece and with the rhythm, perfectly timed with the movie. And it's just amazing to think that that was an addition, like, live on the scoring stage. When they recorded the first version of the cue without that horn element, and then it was suggested to Goldsmith that maybe for that shot of the bird of prey appearing that he should note that in the music and then he kind of made some changes on the scoring stage gave something to the horn player and then they did that hmm. which of course brings us to the return of the klingon theme also from the motion picture and somewhat changed this is actually this movie has some of my favorite renditions of the klingon theme actually the version of it that they use in the end credits as part of the end credits suite is probably my favorite rendition of that theme it's it's more sort of full bodied and it has synthesizer bird calls sprinkled in with it, but even despite that Yeah, the bird call slash I, I think on the liner notes for the album they call it a ram's horn, but really They call that a ram's horn? It's it's a nineteen eighty nine Synclavier. It's up to interpretation. But yeah, that is my favorite rendition of the Klingon theme. And I was kind of surprised that it is in the end credits suite, because I assumed it would be a busy man that would be there. That That is sort of the major theme from this movie. That's what he does in First Contact Insurrection Nemesis, is he writes a theme, a major theme for the movie, and then that is in the end credits suite in between renditions of the original motion picture theme. But in this movie, he doesn't do that. He, he doesn't use a busy man in that spot. He does the Klingon theme. Hmm. Or the mountain could have been used there. That would have been a great opportunity to do a nice little two, two and a half, three minute suite of the theme from the mountain. I love that theme, and every time I hear it, I get more and more disappointed that there isn't like a three minute exploration of it. Well, the exploration of it, I suppose, is over the main titles. Because this is back when they still had main titles on movies. Well, the main title was the motion picture theme. Well, the whole credit sequence is the mountain. Well, that's after they use the motion picture theme. Yeah, it's after the... Mo anyway. Um, of course, if you're actually watching the movie, there's a bit of a busy man kind of clumsily spliced in there, which, ha oh, yeah. which happens sometimes when the recorded cue for the end credits isn't quite as long as the credits wind up being, and so they stick some more music in there. But that is not... Something that was written for the credits that was, you know, the recording of a busy man just kind of spliced in there in some not great edits, which would also happen to another Goldsmith score for Star Trek down the line, but that is neither here nor there. I really like the use of the Klingon theme here, too. I like the Klingon theme whenever it comes back, really. 
I like the Klingon theme, but I was surprisingly disappointed by all of the instances where it's used in the motion picture. Because none of them really lived up to my memory of how good it was. That's interesting, because the Klingon battle in the motion picture is really like a five-minute exploration of that theme. But every time they play that theme, they play it on, like, one horn. Yeah. Uh, This is probably something we talked about with the motion picture. It is. I'm sure. So, that remains unresolved, dear listeners. (laughs) Um, Eric, are you still with us? I am. Cool. I, the only thing that I really have to say is that it was a little too much music for the um, for what was going on on the screen a lot of times. I noticed a mismatch between what was actually playing in the soundtrack, what was what was playing in the score, and what was actually happening on screen. It seemed like it seemed like at various times they were trying to use the score to hide the awful effects. That may very well be. Or at the very least, dress them up a little bit, and it wasn't going over for me. I could easily see how it would come across that way, because a lot of times they use long effect shots as like a showcase for the score. Right. Because you don't have a lot of dialogue, there aren't character actions going on, so you just see the effects, and they use that as an opportunity to really showcase the score together with these amazing effects. Except in this case, the effects are very far from amazing, and so it wouldn't really have worked. Yeah, so it it comes off it comes off just seeming kind of odd and forced. That is fair enough. Um this was nonetheless one of the most wanted of the uh Star Trek scores in terms of expansions when those started up in the late 2000s. Yeah, a lot of people like a busy man a lot. I'm kind of an oddball there. And in terms of intense film score fandom, Goldsmith is, like, a giant for many people, and so his unreleased bits tend to carry a lot of weight. Mm -hmm. This score was released in full, uh, first by La La Land Records in a 5,000-copy issue that sold out within several months. It wasn't an instant sellout, but it was a pretty healthy seller. And then it was reissued by Intrada Records, uh, the presentation on both is identical, and it's really, really nice. It is a good presentation of the score. Previously, I hadn't thought that this was one of my favorite Star Trek scores, but re-listening to the whole thing leading up to doing this podcast, I found myself really, really getting into it. Hmm. This isn't one of my favorites, I have to say, mainly because I don't really like the Busy Man theme that much. I don't think it's used very well. Maybe if it was orchestrated differently, I'd like it better. But I really love that Kirk's Puck love theme. (laughs) Sure. Okay. We are going to try to move into the last phase of this podcast. Thank you, dear listeners, for being with us. Past the Great Barrier. Pat, you have passed the barrier with us. You have found that it is a psychological barrier. It is psychosomatic. You can pass it if you try. Does that mean our wrap-up is Shakari? Are we going to mention that they named Shakari Shakari because originally they wanted to get Sean Connery to play the role of Cybok, and that's where they got the name Shakari from? Around the same time that the Next Generation had Nagilum. Who's that name for? 
Richard Mulligan. Really? I didn't know that. Yes. Huh. Uh, so, yes, they were trying to get Sean Connery to play God, which, hey, you'd, th- you'd, you'd think... But he was busy doing Indiana Jones 3 at the time. He was going to play God or he was going to play Cybok? I thought he was going to play Cybok. They were indeed trying to get Sean Connery to play Cybok, but he was busy doing Indiana Jones 3 at the time. <laughs> I, I, I think you mean they were trying to get him to play Cybok. <laughs> it's me, Spock. It's Cybok. <laughs> Share your pain with me. Your pain runs deep. Ryan, your pain runs deep. Share it with me, and gain strength in the sharing. Share your pain, Scotty. Because when I get that feeling, I need sexual healing. Sorry. Anytime I do a Sean Connery impression, I have to... No apologies. I'm not here to judge. You should. (laughs) I should be judged for that, but that's okay. Well, wait till you find the god of Sean Connery. (laughs) <laughs> is that is that his nickname for his dick <laughs> a bit of movie trivia about sean connery in the movie the red tent he played my great 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 uncle really oh, yes nice wow all right so as we wrap up this podcast i want to talk about the big question does this movie deserve the poor poor reputation that it has and the poor, poor reception that it got. This movie won the 1990 Razzie Award for Worst Picture, Worst Actor for Bill Shatner, Worst Director for Bill Shatner. It was nominated for Worst Picture of the 1980s, Worst Screenplay, and amazingly, it was nominated for Worst Supporting Actor for DeForest Kelly, which I see no justification for in the least. Other other than people didn't like the movie, and so they just nominated it for everything. Well, that's exactly what happens a lot of the time. Whenever anything gains a reputation for being bad, there's a lot of historical piling on to make it, you know, oh, it's so bad, and it's this much worse, and it's that... You, you see the same thing with some wrestling matches. You see the same thing with bad movies or bad episodes of TV shows. Uh, Shades of Grey gets a lot of that. And third season of the original series gets a lot of that. Voyager and Enterprise get a lot of that. That once it gets a reputation for being bad, you just get all this historical piling on, which gives you the perspective that it was actually worse than it really was. Mm. Star Trek... The drunken racist McCoy was probably my least favorite McCoy. Yeah, I don't think McCoy was great in this movie, but that's sort of a parallel to the movie as a whole. This movie is not a good movie. It doesn't No, have... it's a pretty bad movie, but I yeah. don't think it... I, like, I... Worst Picture of the Decade is entirely gratuitous. Yeah. It's worst a... Picture for 1989, well, you could probably make a case for it, but I'm sure there were worse pictures in 89, but this is, I, I think those pictures probably knew that they were going to be worse pictures and everybody else knew they were going to be worse pictures. And Shatner can't direct. This isn't a good movie. This is a bad movie, but it's not one of the all-time worst movies. It's not even my least favorite of the original series Star Trek movies. Because whatever else you want to say about this movie, 
it was not nearly as dreadfully dull as the motion picture. So this isn't even my least favorite of the six original series Star Trek movies, let alone one of the worst movies of the decade or the worst movies of all time. That is an undeserved reputation. It is a bad movie. And in some cases, kind of terrible even, but... Yeah, worst picture of the decade is gratuitous. The screenplay was kind of weak, but it wasn't terrible. It certainly... I, I can't imagine it was the worst screenplay. Shatner's not a very good director, but workmen like it best, but workmen like it worst, too. It deserves about 66% of the reputation it got. Yeah, it definitely deserves to be remembered as a bad movie, but it is not one of the worst movies of the 1980s. I think that's an undeserved reputation. Although one thing that I wanted to bring up is that everyone sort of refers to Star Trek 2, 3, and 4 as like this trilogy of movies. Because Star Trek 2 tells the story of Spock dying, and then in Star Trek 3 they go back and retrieve him and bring him back, and then go into exile on Vulcan, and then in Star Trek 4 it picks up with them in exile on Vulcan, and their return to Earth, and their return to the Enterprise, and they call that like a trilogy because they all happen right in a row and they're the same story. Star Trek V, by all rights, should fit in with that. Star Trek V tells the story of what happens after they get the new ship at the end of Star Trek IV. That they, they have to have a shakedown, and then there's a lot of glitches on the new ship that have to be fixed. And then they get sent out on this mission before they have a chance to fix everything. And then all of Star Trek V happens. There's probably less time period between Star Trek IV and Star Trek V than there is between Star Trek III and Star Trek IV. They say in Star Trek IV they've been in exile on Vulcan for, what, three months or six months? Three months, I think. Yeah. It's not three months between Star Trek IV and Star Trek V. It's at most a handful of weeks. So, by all rights, 2, 3, 4, and 5 should all be considered together as telling one story or connected stories. And by all rights, Star Trek V is the final entry in a quadrilogy. And... I can't think of any reason why it's not considered that way, except that Star Trek V sucks, and they people don't want to lump it in with 2, 3, and 4. Also, I think, I, I think what you're saying would hold a little more water with me if there was a little bit more thematic, like, there, there were more thematic links to what had gone before. I mean, the, the problem with Five is that even if it were a better movie, it's just dealing with some lingering fallout from 234. It's like an epilogue more than it is a full entry into, into a quadrilogy. It's also a little more episodic. I mean, there is the link that they're testing out the new ship and all that, but otherwise it's kind of the continuing adventures of our intrepid Enterprise crew. Yeah. I mean, they could have made this happen like a year later, though they'd have a problem trying to explain why the ship was in such terrible shape. Scotty went on vacation and everything went to hell. Yeah, there you go. I think they actually did that story on DS9, so... Yeah, could have worked. You know, I've mentioned before in this show that I'm all about redemptive readings. We watched this movie yesterday to prepare to do this podcast and i quite liked it fair enough you know i put more emphasis on the characters 
the more I watch it. And I think that their dynamics between the characters and between the actors really carry it. I put more emphasis on the sort of imagery, implied and not, which is sort of the active part of a redemptive reading. I think there are lots of interesting things in here, as we've demonstrated by talking about it for so damn long. Uh, they're not developed fully. Many of them are not developed adequately. Many of them are not developed. It's true. <laughs> but there are kernels of very interesting things here, and there's enough other things that I like between the characters and the music and some of the imagery and the fact that whatever else you want to say about it, the film moves. Well, I mean, that's the comparison I made to Star Trek one. At the very least, it's not slow and dull. Yeah. It, it try it attains you, even if it's not the best of entertainment. There are opportunities in the story that's developed here to be ponderous. And it does not take those opportunities. That you is know, true. Even when sometimes you can claim that at moments they should have slowed down a little to ponder something. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe it should have been more of uh, Bill Shatner's tone poem. You know, like I said... At least a little bit more. Like like I said, that's a fascinating idea that I'd, I'd love to see. But, you know, the movie as it is, I don't think deserves to be derided as much as it has been. I'm not sure that it is so much at this point because it's been more than 25 years and there have been Star Trek movies that people feel are worse. But we'll get there. Oh boy, enjoy Insurrection. That's going to be a good time. <laughs> I'm going to be looking for redemptive readings of Insurrection, my friend. You're not going to find them here. Tell me if you find one, because I'd, I'd, I'd be curious to know what it is. You know, I hope that when I look for redemptive readings of Insurrection, my response isn't... <laughs> I mean, we, we just spent the last two minutes slagging on Insurrection this bad, and it's nowhere near as bad as Nemesis. Indeed. Anywho, this is gonna be well, fun. I agree with a lot of the criticisms... Wholeheartedly, I think it's a fun movie. I think it's worth noting, and we can get more into the reasons when we start talking about the production of Star Trek VI in the next episode, but this is the last movie for Harv Bennett, who's the producer in charge of Star Trek since motion picture, who deserves a lot of credit for saving the franchise yes. after Star Trek I failed in a lot of ways. Not necessarily financially, but it didn't turn a profit. It was a critical failure. It was disliked by most people. And Star Trek II, under the, under the... He didn't direct the movie, but he directed the production and development of the movie under the direction of Harv Bennett. Star Trek II really turned around and made the franchise successful and popular again. And this is his last entry and his only on-screen appearance. He appears on screen... As the Admiral who orders Kirk to Nimbus 3, known only as Bob on the film, although in popular fan theories he's referred to as Admiral Bennett in honor of Harv Bennett. But this is his last involvement with the Star Trek franchise because he disagreed with the studio about development on Star Trek 6 and he left. So it's worth noting his departure and his contributions to the franchise as a whole. 
And it's also a little notable, we might hit on it again, like you say, with production notes on Star Trek VI, but it is notable that after this experience with Bill Shatner having so much influence over the production and the way Star Trek V went, that Harv Bennett's big idea for the next movie was to recast everyone and do a movie about Starfleet Academy. (laughs) So that might have been a bit of a reaction as well. But that will bring us to a close of our discussion of Star Trek V, The Final Frontier, a troubled movie, but one that has some virtues. As we end this episode of the podcast, whenever we have a guest on, I like to ask about other media we've been consuming lately. Just a a quick sort of recommendation could be a book, story, movie, TV, podcast, anything. Eric, do you have something you'd like to recommend to our listeners? Oh, that is a good question. Um, The media that I have been consuming mostly lately has been video games. And in particular, Bloodborne, because I finally got a PS4. And I am a big fan of the Souls series of video games, of which Bloodborne is kind of one of them. It's got the same punishing difficulty and setup and Lovecraftian nastiness and lots and lots of eyes everywhere. Ah, well. All eyes. Any bits of Lovecraftian nastiness must be uh, worth checking out. Thank you very much. Thank you, Eric, for being here. Uh, Let's do our plugs on the way out. Where can people find you on the internet? All right, well... I have a very short story coming out, I think, in the next few weeks in Lackington's magazine. It is an online um, science fiction and fantasy magazine that is based out of Canada. It is at lackingtons.com. Otherwise, you can find some other things that I have published at Clark's World magazine, Strange Horizons, Apex, and I think think the story that i got in weird tales is still available somewhere on the internet but that was a while ago and weird tales has had some weird things happen to it can people find that just by searching for your name yes they can excellent the exact spelling will be in our show notes it is eric with a k yes (laughs) eric is there anywhere on social media you'd like people to find you yes i do a little bit of tabletop gaming related blogging at the beast fears fire which is a blog that i have mirrored both on wordpress and blogger because i forgot that i did one and then i did the other and so now i just mirror stuff up there otherwise i have a twitter account that i never use i have a tumblr account that i never use i have a facebook account that i never use so Cool. Not very social media savvy. All right. Well, if you would like to find me on the lines, I am at Galeni Bun on the Twitters and the Tumblers, mostly the Tumblers. I'm on Facebook if you really want to find me, but, you know, ask yourself some questions first. You can find all of the episodes of the Glenn Butler Podcast, Our Spectacular, at placetobenation.com, along with a host of other content about professional wrestling and other aspects of popular culture. You can find all of our episodes about the Star Trek movies and everything else that I've done about Star Trek for the website at placetobenation.com slash Star Trek. 
Scott, you're ghosting. You don't want people to find you. I am not currently engaged in social media. Indeed. Thank you, Eric, for being here. Thank, thank you for having me. Thank you for this great discussion. Thank you, listeners, for listening. We will catch you next time. disturb my cat. <laughs> oh no!